Blog Talk Radio. It's time to strap our boots on. This is the perfect day to die. Wipe the blood out of our eyes. In this life, there's no surrender. There's nothing left for us to do Find the strength to see this through We are the ones who will never be broken With our final breath We'll fight to the death We are soldiers, we are soldiers Well, if they cannot, uh, listen, you know, if they have class or something, 
uh, all these shows are archived, uh, in which if uh, they can't listen to the live show, uh, they'll be able to listen to the podcast that is available shortly after the show ends this evening. Uh, so they can also use that link that you gave them to access the podcast as well. And also, folks, uh, if you'd like to be a part of the mailing list, uh, send me a message by going to www.bardslogicpoliticaltalk.com. Go to the contact page, and you can send me an email and be a part of the mailing list. And so uh, let's go ahead and get the uh, interview started. Uh, then we'll bring the panelists in and uh, callers. So we got our panelists, Dan, on the line, as well as Patricia. So we will bring those in. Uh, but, of course, of course uh, first, Marissa, I said thanks for coming into the show. And so let's begin by telling us how you first got involved in activism. You know, how old are you? And was there any particular issue that spurred you into it? Sure. Uh, well, I, I first, you know, kind of got involved in political activism when I was in high school. Um, a really big issue for me at the time was gay rights activism. Um, my my father came out as gay when I was seven years old, um, so that was a really big issue for me for the longest time. Um, and, you know, for a while I didn't really have a political party that I identified with. Um, I just wasn't really interested at all in, in electoral politics or identifying with a party. Um, you know, a lot of times I was told that because I was a minority a Hispanic and because I was a woman that I was a Democrat. Um, and I kind of just mm. accepted it and really use it as an identifier. Um, but it wasn't until uh, my 12th grade of high school, I was taking a government class, and we had to uh, choose a political party and, and give a five-minute presentation on it, and we had to draw the name of a political party out of a hat. And I uh, picked the Libertarian Party, and I'd never heard of it before. I hadn't heard of any other uh, you know, third parties. Um, so I looked it up, and what I realized is that the political philosophy of libertarianism aligned nearly perfectly with my own life philosophy that I never viewed as political. Um, so I, I started you know, learning more about it, um, started learning about Gary Johnson, who had been our former governor, but I hadn't been aware of at the time. Uh, and I discovered the Young Americans for Liberty chapter at New Mexico State University when I started college um, that following year. Uh, so I got involved in that, uh, became treasurer uh, my sophomore year, and uh, was elected president of the organization, of the chapter on our campus um, last fall. Uh, so that's kind of how I, I cool. got into them. Okay, great. Well, you actually uh, just answered my uh, <laughs> next question, uh, which was, you know, how you got involved with the uh, Young Americans uh, for liberty and why so let's go ahead and go to the next one is uh, now one of the organizations at least with the research i did was biggest concerns is over the national debt uh why do you think this is uh, one of the big issues for your organization and why do you believe the national debt is more important or do you even think that the national debt is more important and pressing matter to our youth in america oh well, i think it's a really big um, issue it's very important to youth um just because this is an issue that you know, affects our nation's youth. I mean, you look at, um, you know, the national debt, if we were to break it down, I believe each individual share of the national debt is over $250,000. Um, and if we look at, uh, you know, today's uh, younger people, uh, you know, millennials, um, they're the ones that are inheriting this national debt. Um, and if, you know, we're not able to balance the budget and, and reduce it, um, you know, in a way we're the ones that are responsible for it and we're looking at just continuing growth of this debt, um, that affects our financial future. Um, so I think that's why it's a really important issue to millennials. Um, I mean, a lot of millennials are very focused on social issues most of the time, um, but I think national debt is one of those things that if we don't have, 
you know, secure financial future, you will get Social Security, which is just insolvent and likely to run out by the time, um, you know, people that are in my generation will be eligible for it. Um, it's really important to look at these issues and, and find ways that we can, I guess, resolve them and secure um, a strong financial future for our generations. Okay, there is a, it sounds like you're breaking up just a little bit. I don't know if you're calling from uh, a cell or uh, what have you. With, so perhaps there's something we can uh, do for that for you from with a different spot. Um, but, I mean, I'm still hearing you. Just sometimes it's a, a little garbled here and there. Um, but let's go ahead. And what, what are some of the other issues uh, that are important to the Young Americans for Liberty? Um, some of the other issues uh, that we really try to focus on, and we focus on both uh, you know, fiscal issues as well as social issues, a really big one lately has been the war on drugs, um, just because you, know, you see it disproportionately affecting um, people of uh, you know, minorities. You see it disproportionately affecting people of lower classes, especially younger persons who, you know, if they um, you know, decide that they want to smoke marijuana, they're looking at possibly ruining their life, ruining their, their future um, because of uh, just really wacky drug laws um, that you know, criminalize um, victimless crimes. Um, so that's a really important issue. That's an issue that we focus on uh, with our Young American Celebrity Chapter. Uh, other activism events that we do focus on, um, Second Amendment rights. Um, so looking at, you know, concealed carry and open carry laws uh, in New Mexico. We also focus on free speech. Um, that's been something that's been a really big issue with college campuses lately. You have, uh, in the past, some college campuses have had free speech zones um, where, you know, they're public campuses, but they don't allow students to practice their freedom of speech outside of designated free speech zones, which are typically, you know, very small squares of um, space, you know, on a large campus. So it's just very unconstitutional, um, but constitutional issues are very important to us. Um, another thing that we focus on a lot of police brutality. Um, you see a lot of situations lately with police brutality getting out of hand, people getting hurt, police officers getting hurt. Um, so events that we like to do are called uh, Flex Your Rights events, where we make sure that students know what their rights are when dealing with police uh, situations so that they don't escalate and we don't end up with situations of police brutality. Um, so it's looking at ways to prevent those types of situations, making sure that students know their rights, um, they know the Constitution, and they can apply it so that they're not taken advantage of um, by you know, bad government policies. Okay, and I'm chatting uh, here uh, with... Uh, Patricia, because uh, I know some of the listeners uh, want to uh, join in chat. And so, if uh, Patricia, you would like to call in, and if you'd like to chime in on the show, uh, just give us a, a call back on that callback number. Uh, or anyone else you'd like to uh, chime in, uh, just give us a call on the 347-945-7428. And so, uh, nextly is uh, the YAL has prompted or at least uh, some of its members, I've noticed, to be involved in CPAC. Uh, now, does the organization consider itself as more conservative or more uh, libertarian? Um, the organization uh, identifies as philosophically libertarian. Uh, we're a nonprofit, nonpartisan 501c3 organization, um, so we don't really identify with any political party. Um, but, you know, we do have students that come. That's kind of the thing with libertarianism is it's very big tent. You have students that come from the left, that come from the right, that might identify as, uh, you know, purely libertarian or classically liberal or less libertarian or, um, you know, more conservative libertarian. So you have a lot of students that will, 
you know, work through maybe the Republican Party or work more with conservatives uh, because they're more interested in achieving change through electoral politics. Um, but the organization it, it, go doesn't identify as strictly conservative. Okay, yeah, because I know they've uh, been a part of, uh, or at least participated in uh, a number of the CPACs. You know, of course, I know that's, you know, you know, a large forum, uh, so definitely, you know, wanting to be a part of that, especially if you want to get the word out of your organization. Uh, now, what are some of the ways and tools uh, that you use to identify, educate, train, and mobilize youth activists? So a lot of the way that we do that um, is, you know, on college campuses uh, through Young Americans for Liberty chapters, like the one that I run on campus. Um, the way that we kind of bring students into our network is to do activism events. Um, they're focused on issues that are engaging to college students. Um, we uh, have a table set up outside of our, um, you know, student union building, usually a couple times a week. Um, we'll hand out literature. We'll hand out flyers for our meetings. We have weekly meetings. Uh, basically, just focusing on issues that students care about. Um, you know, getting them to come out and, and be involved and, um, you know, hopefully realize that these are issues that they're passionate about as well, um, kind of get them to start learning about the philosophy of libertarianism and um, just get involved in these issues that affect us. Um, so that's one of the main ways that we do it. Uh, we also uh, have conferences uh, throughout the year. Um, coming up is our Young Americans for Liberty National Convention in Washington, D.C., where students can come out and hear, you know, amazing speakers. Um, in the past, we've hosted Ron Paul as a speaker, um, we had uh, Glenn Greenwald as a speaker at the Texas Yale Convention in April. So we have uh, regional conventions, uh, state conventions rather, uh, throughout the country every spring. Um, so those are other ways that students can come out and learn about the liberty movement, learn about these issues uh, by hearing great speakers and networking with other like-minded students. And lately, I mean, I know I'm in, I went, you know, back uh, to college. Uh, late and we'll see how late, <laughs> but I remember uh, in 2012 uh, that there was a lot of support for Obama in the ca- uh, on the campus that I went to, and so and then you know of course with you know different issues that what are you finding uh, on the college campuses at least where you're at and uh, maybe if you're uh, hear from some of your colleagues what specifically of course besides the uh, national debt what we discussed earlier are those important issues uh, to our youth and those uh, on the campuses. Um, the one issue that we've gotten a lot of um, support with uh, on our specific college campus, the events that we get a lot of students um, coming to, are events that focus on the drug war, on ending the drug war specifically, and on um, NSA surveillance. I mean, those are both issues that students really care about. Um, just because, you know, the ending the drug war is a social issue. A lot of students um, have either, you know, been the victim of um, just ridiculous drug laws, or they know people who have been victim to, to drug laws. Um, so that's a really important issue to students as well as, you know, NSA surveillance. Um, a lot of students are uncomfortable with the idea that the government has access to their, uh, you know, phone records or text messages. Um, so that's an issue that students really care about. They care about their privacy, uh, especially, you know, being a generation that relies so heavily on, um, you know, technology and, and being able to communicate through through cell phone and Internet. Um, that's something that makes students very uncomfortable. So it's an issue that they can get pretty passionate about. Now, one of the things I've seen uh, recently, uh, I believe it's my as recently as tonight, uh, about uh, the discussion out there about Obama giving billions of dollars uh, worth of student loans. Is that uh, an issue that's uh, been discussed recently uh, in your organization and how the uh, students are feeling about that? Um, you know, something we kind of bring up when we talk about national debt 
um, the problem with student loans is a lot of students who, um, you know, myself included, that receive student loans, um, you know, in a way some of them don't want to bite the hand that feeds them, you know, in, in um, kind of bashing government handing out loans. Um, when you look at it economically, uh, one should realize that when the government is handing out all these loans with um, very small or no interest rates, um, that it you know, really ends up uh, raising the cost of education because you have, you know, universities become more profit-driven because they know that they can charge a little bit more uh, for their tuition because they know students are going to be able to pay for it with government loans. Um, so we'll, you know, usually bring that up to students and kind of give them a different perspective to look at it. It's, you know, not just free money, you know, with grants that the government's giving out come from somewhere and there are, um, you know, consequences uh, for, you know, the government kind of handing out this free money and, and giving out low interest rate loans. Okay, I'm, I'm gleaning some of these uh, questions uh, from the chat and mentioning, and thank you, Harriet, uh, mentioning from the convention in Washington, D.C., when is that? Oh, the national convention is going to be uh, July 29th through August 3rd. I, I believe those are the dates. Um, and with that one, it's uh, by invitation only. Um, uh, it, it's typically just for student activists um, that are, you know, interested in, in strengthening their activism skills to be able to reach out to more students. Um, and, and so that one, they usually have about 350 attendees. Um, and if anyone is interested in, in applying um, for for that event, uh, you can go to yaliberty.org. And um, currently the application is still open. And if you apply by June 15th, uh, the registration fee is waived, uh, which means that you'll be able to um, register for free. Normally it's $30. Okay, and that uh, June 15th, folks, of course, as we know, is in five days. Uh, so <laughs> time's definitely running short on that. And I got oh, a question yeah, here yeah. from well, Holly. Get the registration fee waived. It'll still be open for a while. Okay, that's just to get the registration fee waived. Okay. Well, thank you for uh, clearing that up <laughs> with me or emphasizing that. Uh, and so, yes, uh, Holly, and this may affect uh, you more so than other uh, campuses and other uh, states, but you being in Mexico, you're, you know, of course, closer to the border. Is is there any kind of discussion uh, or concern of what's going on with uh, immigration, namely with the university that you're at? Um, you know, it's not an issue that's, uh, you know, really discussed as much um, in New Mexico. We're very close to the Mexican border. We're about uh, 45 minutes away from Juarez. Um, it tends to be a very, you know, emotionally charged issue on both sides. Um, and you look at, you know, current legislation in New Mexico with uh, Susana Martinez, our governor, and our Congressman Steve Pierce has been really pushing for um, strengthening and, and tightening the, the southern borders. Um, you know, as, as a libertarian, um, I actually believe that, you know, relaxing border security and having more open borders uh, would be better just because we have more economic prosperity. Um, so that's definitely an issue that we're going to be looking at, um, focusing more of our activism efforts on uh, next semester. Um, but it's not really something that we, we have a lot of uh, students coming up to us and asking us about, surprisingly, being that we're in New Mexico. So what are your thoughts of uh, folks who are not from your state, uh, primarily uh, folks, you know, coming over from Mexico to get uh, student grants or at least get the in-state tuition when they're not from New Mexico? Uh, sorry, what was the question? Uh, the question is, you know, a lot of you know, states, universities are allowing their um, – Students who you know are from Mexico who are coming over, whether legal or maybe even illegal, coming over the borders, 
And, and, and this is one thing, I, you know, with, with the libertarians with the open borders, you know, I, I question, uh, especially with this and when it comes to students, is how, how do students feel uh, about the who are paying, you know, who are coming from out of state who are paying out of state uh, tuition when you have the uh, folks who are coming from Mexico who are actually paying in-state tuition and they're not residents of that state? Um, well, you know, I haven't really heard, um, I guess, too much about, um, you know, students from Mexico. I, I guess um, a lot of times when you kind of think about it, I mean, the students are coming to New Mexico, they're, they're coming to school because they want to have a higher education, because they want to be able to work in the United States. Um, and I think that's admirable that they're actually, you know, going through the crack process of getting uh, student visas. You know, they want to be educated. They want to contribute to society. Um, you know, they're not looking to just profit off of welfare like a lot of people just assume that immigrants to the United States do. So I, I don't really think there's too much of a concern over, um, you know, students from Mexico uh, coming to New Mexico State University because of the fact that they're you know, interested in getting an education and, and you know, contributing to our society. So with the ones who are coming over, though, I, we're getting a little off, off topic, but that's kind of the organic nature of the show, is that uh, with that, is there, with those who are coming from Mexico getting in-state tuition, which is lower tuition, is that something that would be considered uh, fair to the students who already are in states, uh, you know, are residents of the state paying the same amount, or those who are actually United States citizens who are getting you know, to have to pay those out-of-state tuition fees because they're, you know, not from New Mexico? Sure. Uh, well, um, one thing you have to realize is that we have the lottery scholarship in New Mexico, which is basically any um, student who graduates from high school in New Mexico has a full tuition scholarship as long as you have, I believe it's a 2.75 GPA. Um, so it's low enough that most students, um, in-state students at least, don't have to pay tuition if they, you know, come right out of high school. Um, so they have that advantage um, as well as a lot of out-of-state students, especially coming from uh, maybe Arizona or um, bordering states, um, receive uh, kind of a, a waiver, so they end up getting in-state tuition as well. Um, and when it comes to out-of-state tuition, it's actually not that much more expensive. Um, New Mexico State University has uh, probably one of the lowest out-of-state tuitions um, turned to any other school. Um, we do get a lot of students that come from out-of-state because it's a lot cheaper to pay out-of-state tuition in New Mexico than it is in their own states. Um, so I think because the amount of tuition that students are having to pay at New Mexico State University is so low, it's just not really seen as an issue. Um, and in-state tuition, or in-state students typically have the tuition paid for um, by our lottery scholarship. So they don't really um, see it as, as unfair as long as tuition is still being paid. Okay, and that's who, uh, go ahead. I, I, got I hope that answers uh, your question. Okay, and, you know, we, we may delve more to it uh, more. Maybe perhaps Dan may have uh, some you know, questions or comments or not. But moving forward is you know, with the Young Americans for Liberty, it's, as you said earlier, it's a nonprofit organization. Uh, mm -hmm. And how, so how, does the, how do they get their funding for the activities that you guys do? Most of our funding comes from private uh, just private donations. Um, a lot of times it comes from alumni um, or uh, maybe, you know, just individuals who are, you know, really just interested in the work that we're doing and are passionate about um, student activists um, in this movement. But all, all of our funding comes from private donation. Um, we don't accept any kind of uh, government funding. 
Okay. And where can, uh, you know, folks who are interested in uh, the Young Americans for Liberty, uh, how can they, you know, where do they have to go to make donations? Do they make it to the organization, like a national organization, or do they make, um, or do they make uh, just ones to the separate chapters? Or how was one to get involved, whether through donation or uh, to get perhaps uh, their student involved? Sure, sure. I mean, you can do it either way. Um, a lot of it you know, can be done by going to the website, uh, yaliberty.org. Um, there's a big green donate button on the on the home page. Um, with that, you can just donate, um, just make a general donation to just a national organization, or you can specifically, um, you know, mention that you want to donate to a, to a specific chapter, um, and it gives you the option to do that as well. Um, and oh, um, is, is really good about making sure that the specific chapter receives that money. Okay, great. Great. Definitely uh, check that out, folks. And uh, last question I have before uh, bringing it over to Dan, and then I see uh, uh, Patricia, too, on the line, and we got some others uh, on the line. If you'd like to uh, call, to chime in, just push the one on your number dial, and I'll make sure that I get you into the show. One thing we do different here on the show is if you'd like, once you come into the show, you can, of course, stay with us and join the roundtable discussion for the rest of the evening. So unlike a lot of talk shows where you get your five uh, minutes in or so, uh, they let you go. Uh, not here on Bard's Logic Political Talk. Uh, we allow you to stay on for the remainder of the show if you like. So just push the one on your number dial if you'd like to get in. And so the last question before I bring in Dan is I know the organization is uh, centered around college campuses. Has there been any kind of discussion in finding ways to get the high school students involved? Um, well, we actually do have um, some students uh, from high school chapters. It's kind of uh, difficult getting high school students involved um, just because you have the um, issues of, you know, parental guardians. Um, whereas with college, we can right, right. have social events. We can organize meetings or protests. Um, it's a lot easier when you're not having to deal with someone who's under 18 and you need to get parent uh, uh, permission or um you know, chaperones for events. Um, so we do have some high school students involved. Uh, for the most part, they just kind of um, follow along with our events. Or they'll, they'll come to uh, our conventions, um, and they become, you know, more fully involved once they go to college and are able to join or start a Young American for Liberty chapter. Okay, great. Well, you definitely want to see more uh, the youth, even at an earlier age, get involved, you know. I know my daughter's 13 who uh, came into the studio here, uh, offering me ice cream a minute ago. I'm like, I can't do it. I'm on the show. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> no, I, I really wish uh, my daughter's – yeah, I wish my daughter was more politically involved. And actually, when I first uh, did the show back in 2012, um, I did it more so than now. But, um, but yeah, she, she I think she's got a, a, a dislike now for politics because, unfortunately, uh, being doing the show takes time away from her and – so now she doesn't want anything to do with politics. Oh, that's <laughs> so, well, unfortunately, but maybe she, she gets older. Issue. Sure, I can guarantee one. If she finds an issue that's important to her, I'm, I'm sure she'll get involved. Um, but it's well, all about I, I hope so. Cause it's definitely important. Go ahead. Well, that's, well it's time uh, now. Well, we're almost at the bottom of the hour, first hour already. So let's go ahead and before we bring Dan in, let's go ahead and hear from the Patriot Journalist Network. You're not just listening to a show, you're part of the powerful voice of the conservative conversation on Blog Talk Radio. Nothing worthwhile has ever been accomplished without teamwork. PJNet invites you to help make a difference by adding your voice to the team grassroots 
conservatives working together to take our country back. To find out more, check out the PJNet hashtag and visit our website at PatriotJournalist.com. Let PJNet add our muscle to your hustle. Definitely, folks, check out the Patriot Journalist Network at www.patriotjournalist.com. Or, of course, you can find the Patriot Journalist uh, hashtag on Twitter with the hashtag PJNet. And so let's go ahead at this time and bring in uh, our panelist, Dan. Dan, thank you very much for coming to the show. How are you tonight? Oh, exhausted. <laughs> it seems like of course. I've said this before, but every single time, I get to a point where I just can't handle anything else. And I had tons of energy when I was this young lady's age. I ran marathons and had three jobs at one time. I'm doing even more now. And I'm, I'm, I've got a kid her age. Uh, but somehow God, and that's my own personal belief, I'm not trying to tell anybody that what they have to believe, has given me some energy from somewhere. Anyway, um, very quick program note. Uh, Kelly has me working on a project, which uh, will be for uh, Friday's special show, which is going to be our guest, Matt Bevan. But tonight, we don't have Matt. We've got somebody who is better in one sense. And and, and I'll tell you why I think you're better, Marisa. Um, You're younger. You've got more potential. The older you get, the less is likely that you're going to be able to get done. I'm 54. I hope I get a lot more done. I'm being fairly effective now, but, uh, you know, you've got a lot of potential there, and I'm really pleased. Um, let's start with what you were bringing up at the beginning, why you got into this, because uh, of, you have a gay family member. So do I. It's not, not just one. Uh, we've, it happens, uh, and it doesn't matter to me about that at all. The way I evaluate them is, are they good, kind people? And do they have good sound minds? And do they do the best that, with what they've got to try and help others? You look at the coalition that the Democrats have cobbled together of so-called groups, people who are um, identified by external characteristics or, or some sort of membership in a group that is not a voluntary thing, all right? Um, being a woman, as you mentioned, or being gay or, or uh, being black or being brown, um, these are, or being a college educated person. This is supposed to mean that you're part of a group, a monolith, and you're treated as a group. Well, you're a libertarian, which means you treat people as individuals. That's how I treat people. Um, It isn't something that's required to be a Democrat. Um, And I wish the Democrat Party would do what the Republican Party is doing and what the Libertarian Party is really doing, which is um, bringing new candidates and honest ideas into the mix instead of supporting the establishment. You don't have to be uh, that to be a Democrat. But right now, if you're a Democrat, that's pretty much what you support. Um, It's natural for youth to rebel against authority. And it was very disheartening to me. Coming from the left, I was a really, really leftist, Marxist, progressive guy when I was uh, a little bit younger than you. And I learned over the years from experience, from from life teaching me things, why that wasn't working. And and the people running things today, although they have different rhetoric, really aren't any different than Richard Nixon. And anybody who wants to argue that with me, I'll give them facts. I was there. Okay, <laughs> These people want government power over individuals by grouping these individuals into categories 
and then treating them all according to their category. So everybody who is black, let's say, or um, Asian is supposed to be a certain way, but they're not. They're individuals. You have good ones, bad ones, smart ones, and dumb ones, hard workers and lazy ones in every group. I'm, I'm an older, I'm a middle-aged, let's say that, white guy. And that's supposed to include me in a specific group. I'm supposed to be a certain way. And in some ways I am, but in a lot of ways I am not. I, I never was. And I'm never going to be just because of something I can't control. I have no control over my skin color or my height. Um, and I happen to be a Jew, which is something that uh, I had no control over until I was grown up. I'm not a very religious guy, but there are Jews of all kinds too. And you, you'll note that uh, a lot of them are leaving the party because they're finally waking up to realize the most important thing in this fight is the youth because I'm fighting for something that I'd like to pass on to my daughter. I may have 30, 40 years. I may not. And I've really had a pretty full life. This is that phase of life where you're, you want to hand something down to the next generation. But you guys are fighting for your very existence. None of you have known what I, knew, what I experienced. It's, it's a shame. None of you had the opportunity to start a business without jumping through a billion hoops. I started businesses in my 20s where I had no tax attorney. I had no workers' comp lawyer. I had no uh, Obamacare navigator. <laughs> I had none of those things. I started with cash and hard work and very little cash and a lot of hard work. And I was able to build businesses where I was able to hire people and create value. And once you get a certain amount of business going, you have given people a certain number of hours and money. Yeah, you had to pay taxes back then, but it wasn't that difficult. I, I didn't spend more than an hour every week, if that, just filling out the paperwork. It was really simple. And that was only a, a few decades ago. A few decades before that, you didn't even have to do that much. Okay, it was a few hours a month. Um, when you're talking about certain issues like fiscal responsibility, you you have to let the, the other kids know. And I, and I work with a lot of kids your age. I can say kid. I'm older. Um, <laughs> who are not college students. Uh, they, they didn't buy into this. I'm going to get into debt. They're not interested in going to some giant progressive institution because with few exceptions, that's what academia has become. They, they set mm -hmm. their sights on this, the progressive status um, many decades ago, and they've been very successful at infiltrating and co-opting that wonderful institution of higher learning, which is now, you know, unless you're going for the hard sciences, and even then, in some cases, what they're teaching isn't necessarily truth. And it certainly, as you said, doesn't invite questions. So you talked about issues like fiscal responsibility. If you, in a few years, decide that you're going to have kids, they already owe money pretty sure that if their kids had kids, they already owe money for stuff we've spent that we, not on things that we can point to and go, wow, look at that bridge. Check out that road. Look at the fact that we, you know, America is, is surging ahead with, with all these great things we've invented and we've built. No, we've, we've spent it on living expenses. We've been maxing out our credit card and using the credit card to pay the minimum balances on the other credit card just to pay for food, cheese puffs and pizza. Mm -hmm. 
And you talk about the war on drugs. This is this is a natural for anyone, but especially a young person. Not because they should be doing drugs. I came up in the 60s and 70s, and it was bad because we thought they were good. We thought drugs were good. Uh, Chip Carter was in the White House as President Carter's son smoking pot, and his Surgeon General said that cocaine wasn't addictive or harmful. This is the kind of BS they were handing us to try and degrade society, and it worked. And now I look at kids that I coached, young people who are now adults who are your age, um, when they were little kids, they were great little kids, and some of them are hooked on heroin now, and some of them have really messed their mm. lives Yeah, up. that's an epidemic they, coming out. Yeah. Um, so fiscal responsibility cannot be solved by confiscating everybody's stuff and paying the bills. If you confiscated everybody's stuff right now, it's not enough to pay the bills. And then if you got all my stuff and I know that if I make more, you're just going to take my stuff, why am I going to work exactly? For what? I'll, I'll take my, my paycheck, my minimum wage, and, and be fed like everybody else, but I'm not going to take a risk and work 100-hour weeks like I used to running my own business. The war on drugs was proven to be completely wrong, and a quick, easy study of history will do this. I don't know how many people today um, in their 20s even know what prohibition really was, and that was a progressive movement that said the, the ideal was that we can legislate morality. We can change people's behavior. We can socially engineer them. It didn't mm -hmm. work. But the whole point of it wasn't really what the true believers were going for. This, the government said this is an opportunity for us to encroach, for us to get power. And it ended up with terrible abuses. Uh, the government was actually poisoning alcohol and letting it out on the market so that they could punish people who drank. Poisoning them, blinding them, killing them. This is fact. And... It led to, now tell me if this sounds familiar with these drug cartels today, it led to organized crime getting extremely rich and powerful and violent and governments being corrupted. Well, mm -hmm. there you go. So That's what happens. Like the, um, Baptist and go ahead, Marissa. Oh, no. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Marissa. Go ahead. Um, and you brought up a lot of really important okay. points, especially with, uh, you know, uh, typically, you know, Democrats just kind of, um, putting people into these neat little boxes, um, you know, depending on you know, whether it's uh, their gender, their minority, um, their class. And a lot of times it's just using them as voter blocks as their own way of, of getting ahead um, without actually viewing them as individuals and, and viewing um, their rights as, as important. Well, I'll tell you, they do have a natural constituency, and that's the people who either uh, want to be, and there's few of these, thank God, bullies, uh, that's a natural consistency for either the uh, establishment Democrat or the establishment Republican Party, people who want to lord it over others and make others conform to their will, who say, my idea of how you should live is so good that I can't convince you of it because you're stupid or you're just wrong. So I'm going to use government force to coerce you and make you do what I think is the right thing. And the majority of the people who follow, and this is true about Republican Party too, the establishment, mm -hmm. are leeches, people who have gotten used to being lazy and taking. And, and yes, I am including the Republican Party, because while the Democratic Party has a, a, the majority at this point of poor folks who are used to sitting on their ass and taking a government handout, 
And I work at the unemployment office, and I know that it's not 5%. It's 30% who have voluntarily, in quotes, left the workforce. 95 million Americans who are not working, who did work, who could work, who should work. And I don't blame them in a bad economy for getting food stamps or something. But there is a limit. And after you go past a certain limit and you know what you're doing, you're just a leech. You're stealing from other people and stealing from your own children. And there's a lot of lazy people out there. The Republicans do it by looking for corporate welfare. They want special breaks, special tax breaks. They want laws that favor the industry. And this this is true across the board. You know, if you look at Uber and taxi cabs, the giant fight is... Yeah, Uber's getting big. <laughs> well, the taxi cab association that's out there in every single different city, municipality, has control. They've got laws specially written to mean that, that you have to go through them to be able to work, to be able to, to provide that service. Look, in Pennsylvania, and we are even the worst by any means, if you want to cut hair, you need to go to school for two years and get a license. If you want to do nails, do someone's nails, you have to have a license. If you have, basically, if you want to do almost anything, you need to have pay a bribe to some professional organization to allow you to be a member, and you need to go to a school and pay the school a bunch, which means you're getting some government debt because who can afford that? The exorbitant fees from most states on their own, unless the taxes are real high. Um, and then, then when you go into business, you're not in business by yourself because you can't do what you want to do. Look, I, I'm not against regulation. You were talking, um, Marissa, about borders. Mm-hmm. When I look at borders, I look at the Constitution, which mentions borders. And I wonder, well, what do they mean? Are we American or not? Are we world citizens? Should there be no government at all? I- I've come to the conclusion that we do need some government. I'm not an anarchist, but minimum government. I think that's called minarchist Yes. Um, that's what our founders were. They they did, as, as Obama, the, the great constitutional scholar he pretends to be, he did get it right <laughs> when he said that the Constitution was a charter of negative liberties on government. It doesn't tell people what to do. It doesn't tell people anything. It just tells the government what they can't do. So if you're going to have a did Obama didn't like, like that. that, remember that? <laughs> no, he didn't. He doesn't, remember he when Obama, Obama was talking about the, that, about the Constitution? Right? Yes. And, and if you're going to have a Constitution like that, if you're going to follow that, those rules, which we, sh- we are not following and we really should, you have to have a country to do it. Now, my attitude, this is a radical idea that I've never heard anybody else say. Uh, it may be crazy. Um, certainly, it may not be popular. But... I'm actually not opposed to a one-world government at all. I'm not. Um, But here's my terms. See, we have 50 states, and each of those states has a constitution, which has to be in confirmation with the United States Constitution. Now, provided, this is how the only, my my conditions for a world government, provided that the United States Constitution... And then after that, real quick, uh, real quick, quick, uh, Dan, I just want a little programming note. Yeah, and then after this, we're going to go ahead and bring Kelly in on the line uh, after we get some comments uh, on Marissa, uh, what you're talking about. Then we're going to bring in Kelly. Go ahead, Dan. I'll finish it up real quickly. So once we restore adherence to constitutional laws and constitutional liberties, 
and we make certain that all the states are adhering to their own constitutions. If we wanted to add states, and I'll pick the first one that I would add, if they want to join, would be Puerto Rico. They're a commonwealth. Mm -hmm. They're a possession of the United States. Uh, they're citizens. So I would give them the, the choice and make certain that they have to make that choice. You can be a sovereign state on your own and be one of our allies, a sister nation. That's fine. If you want to do that, go ahead and do that. You're no longer Americans. You don't get anything from us except whatever foreign aid we may be able to, to afford if we want to. Um, or you can be the 51st state, which means you have to pay taxes, no more handouts. I have no problem, although I like Canada being Canadian, and I like Mexico. I have a lot of friends who are Mexican, and, and a few of them are legal Mexican-American citizens. They're cool people, really want to be Americans. Um, some have been here a long time, independent nation that wasn't being run by corrupt drug cartels and uh, politicians, I'd have no problem with them as a great neighbor. Now, if they wanted to become a state, you know, or, or a collection of states, because it's a pretty big country, I, they could join. I have no problem with any country in the world that wants to follow constitutional rules, joining us one at a time, provided they want to and provided we consider that they're doing what's required and want to join us. But, yeah, I do tend to talk too much. So, Ms. Salazar, it's it's your turn. Okay. Um, well, uh, just quickly, you know, kind of respond to that comment, right, that it is definitely not, um, I, I guess, a position that's, uh, you know, widely held of, of having, um, you know, like a one-world government. Um, I, I personally, I, I guess, would not really agree with that. I mean, I, I like the points you're coming from, um, but I guess one thing as a libertarian is that I view, um, you know, the, the rights, of not only American citizens, but just of humans. Um, I believe that we have the right to freely migrate. Um, and that's kind of um, why I, I agree more with, you know, states' rights and giving states more power, uh, more so than the federal government. Um, just because, you know, if there's, you know, maybe a specific law um, in a state that you're living in that you don't agree with, you're able to move to a different state that doesn't have that law. And, you know, it's kind of like the, if you don't like it, you can leave. But you can't do that when there are bad laws coming from the federal government. Um, so, so I think that's kind of uh, one reason why I wouldn't necessarily want a uh, one-world government unless we could truly limit it. Um, and I, I think the uh, whole idea of, of having a limited government is an oxymoron in itself of expecting, um, you know, a, a governing body, that kind of institution, to limit itself. Um, so that's one that, that I've, I've struggled with with my identity as, um, you know, it's going from minarchist to anarchist, um, you know, just kind of looking at the... Uh, impractical nature of, of governments limiting themselves. Um, another issue that you brought up that I wanted to touch on a little bit more um, was just kind of looking at, you know, where we've come with uh, the welfare state. Um, you brought up a lot of um, kind of a growth of dependence on government. Um, and that's definitely something that's been an issue, um, you know, both in, uh, you know, conservatives and liberals, you have uh, Republicans who rely a lot on government welfare. Um, you have a lot of liberals that push for um, increases in entitlement. And we look at, you know, we've been fighting the war on poverty for over 50 years now. And, you know, where has it gotten us? Um, you know, we haven't really been bringing people out of poverty. We've just been making it more comfortable for them to to live in poverty. You know, we um, have all of these entitlement programs um, like Medicaid, uh, uh, SNAP benefits, um, you know, food stamps that just make it more comfortable for people that are currently living um, in poverty. But it doesn't do anything to help them up. Um, you know, really popular welfare rhetoric, rhetoric is that it's more of a handout rather than a hand up. 
Um, so I think that's something we need to focus on more of, of giving people more economic opportunities to uh, pursue their own wealth, you know, to, to bring themselves out of poverty rather than expecting government to do it because obviously the government has failed at doing that. Um, I recently read a uh, policy analysis from Michael Tanner of the Cato Institute, um, and one quote that I really liked that he brought up uh, saying that we are throwing these people a life preserver to keep them afloat but not pulling them into the boat. Um, and you brought up, you know, issues with um, Uber, you know, of uh, taxi cabs um, kind of lobbying to get laws that keep uh, Uber drivers from from operating um, or uh, mm-hmm. hair stylists that need to be licensed to operate. I mean, it's just adding a lot of red tape and regulations that make it harder for people to pursue their own wealth, to start their own businesses, um, really to make it on their own. So it, you know, comes down to an issue of bad incentives, why we have so many more people that are uh, in the welfare system because it's so difficult for them to achieve their own wealth, but it's a lot easier just to not work and just to receive uh, in-kind benefits um, through welfare programs. And a lot of times um, you look at, at uh, you know, the average amount of money that's paid out to people that receive welfare. A lot of times people are receiving the um, equivalent of, uh, you know, what they'd be making at a 15 or $20 per hour job. They're making a lot more money by just receiving these welfare benefits. But there's no incentive to, uh, you know, mm-hmm. stop being a leech. There's no incentive for them to join the workforce because when they join the work, they start, you know, having to pay so many taxes that they realize they're going to make a lot more money. They're going to be better off by, you know, continuing to be a burden on society by staying in welfare. So I think that's, you know, really a big issue that we need to focus on, especially if we're looking at trying to fight and reduce uh, the national debt. Um, I believe it was projected that by 2050, 75% of um you know, uh, taxpayer funding will be paying for um, entitlement programs such as Medicaid and uh, Medicare and Social Security. And that's, you know, 75% of our taxpayer funding is just going to to those three programs. Um, And that's definitely something we need to, you know, really reduce and just scale back on um, if we, you know, ever expect to have any kind of economic prosperity and not have a country that is so completely dependent on uh, government welfare systems. Well, I'll make a brief comment for a brain. Oh, go ahead. Go I didn't ahead. mean to interrupt you, Marissa. Oh, no, that's not comment. No, okay. And one, one comment for a brain, Kelly, and, and you know, about the one world government is if you're going to have a one, more, one world government, is, this is just how I see it. If you're going to have a one world government, then, you know, I see some of your points. Because uh, I'm a big Star Trek fan. I'm a big geek. Well, you know, not big geek, but just a geek. But, you know, and that, that's pretty much how they had, like, in Star Trek and stuff like that, which I could see where the, uh, you know, appeal would be. Uh, but also what they had, not just a one-world government, they had a one-world economy. And that's where I have the doubts on its success uh, is not only being ruled, you know, having a one-world government, is is having a one-world economy because can the world, and I'm not talking about environmentalists, we, we know I am one, uh, but I'm just saying is there a way to have a world economy in which, you know, all the nations are equal, where it's not everyone being put down into poverty instead of bringing everyone up. I just don't know if that's something uh, that's feasible uh, to have, you know, a, a, you know that kind of a middle class across the globe. Perhaps it is. That, I mean, something to bear looking at. But, I mean, we've been around for how many, you know, thousands Easy of enough years. Easy enough, but no the government can't that. do it. Robert, the government can't do anything. They, 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 I work for government. Okay, I've worked for big businesses. The bigger it gets, 
the less accountable it is. The more layers there are, the more you have the power to just do what you want by fiat, by direction, by order, the less efficient it gets. And government screws stuff up. Government is for a few necessary things that are required and nothing else. You want to bring the entire world out of poverty? It, it's way richer than it was before. People have stuff today in most places of the world that 100 years ago nobody had. We have, you know, there's a lot of people who have clean drinking water and who have electricity and who have secure homes and who have, have regular food. These are big things if you look at the course of human history. And what brought them up mm-hmm. was free trade. And I don't mean the Trans-Pacific Partnership or NAFTA or GATT or any of that crap. I mean real trade between individuals who chose to do business with each other and who had a bottom line of responsibility. Look, I've been in business and I've failed in business, and the reason was because I was responsible. And if I made a mistake or market condition changed or somebody offered something better and cheaper, I was done. And that's how it works. Nobody gets a safety net when it comes to business, nor should they. Nobody's too big to fail. No, I, I so let's go ahead and go ahead, Marissa, and then we'll bring you Kelly. Oh, yeah, and that's one of the biggest issues that we have uh, with the government and starting itself with the economy is we have the government choosing winners and losers, and you end up having um, those businesses or lobbyists that are, you know, the most well-connected uh, with government officials are the ones who end up succeeding um, just because they're able to take advantage of that. Um, and we don't have a free market where the successful businesses thrive, um, and I think that's one of the biggest issues with the current state of our economy. Agreed. Okay, here's something that, uh, real, real quick, Kelly, but I just wanted to get a note here from Harriet, and we'll see what uh, people think of this. It says, Justin, Florida Disney World, which I will be finding myself in actually this time next month, <laughs> taking my daughter there. Uh, as a Florida Disney World recently laid off 1,500 employees and, and hired with a special program such as school and work and home provided and imported 1,500 or more illegals with visas to Florida. That's, that's interesting, Harry. Harry, if you could give us a call at 347-945-7428. Uh, I, do, I would like to uh, discuss more about this, and uh, you could talk with Marissa. I know she's got to go at the bottom of next hour uh, because of her schedule for tomorrow. So, Harry, give, go ahead and give us a call in and give us more. That's kind of broken up uh, what you got in chat so we can – uh, go over that, and then let's be bringing Kelly. But let's go ahead and bring Kelly on, and then Harry Epsilon will hear from you. But Kelly, thank you very much for calling to the show. How are you? Hey, I'm doing all right. I'm sorry for calling in a little late. I just talked with the uh, former state chair of Libertarian Party, uh, Kevin Takanaga. I had to compliment him because he really devoted eight years of his life to be the state chair here in California. It was a good talk. So he, he, um, He's now moving on to other things, and um, it's it's pretty amazing to see people that actually get their hands dirty and get things done. Um, so, yeah, that was kind of why well, I'm a little bit late. But uh, anyway, I'm glad we have our guests. I don't know quite what the overall conversation is, but I figured it's probably best for me just to listen for a while and, and I guess say welcome to our guest. Thank you very much. I'm very glad to, to be on the show tonight. Well, Kelly, if, if you weren't listening, uh, I had a message for you, which is that uh, 
I think you'll be very pleased with that secret project that we have for Matt Bevin's appearance on Friday. And what we've been talking about is Young Americans for Liberty and libertarianism in America and how it affects the youth. In fact, listen, I'm not registered libertarian. I think it's the only party I've never been registered in. I do tend to not really care about labels. I like to vote in the primary. I'll give you an update here in Pennsylvania. A friend of mine, Sean Felty from Cressona, who got elected, elected in a small conservative Democrat town in the middle of Schuylkill County, which is really, really, it's a wonderful place. It's so backward, and I mean that in the best possible way. I love Schuylkill County. But uh, he has just been elected chair for the state. He's now the uh, Libertarian Party chair for the entire state. And it's not just because he has the great ideas. It's because he's getting the work done, which means finding candidates, vetting candidates, coming up with platforms, attending meetings. Folks, you know what? You want to change the world. You can change it. You can change it any number of ways. You can change it through politics, which means to get involved and to go to boring meetings and to sign petitions and to raise money and to to just, oh, it's it's a lot of cruddy work that the status of the Republican and Democrat parties do. And if you're not willing to do it, we lose in politics. But we're starting to win because enough people are starting to get involved. Now, you have a couple other choices. Real quick, Kelly. Yeah, I just want to point out real quick the reason why I called him is because he is a very good leader. He can be very gracious in times of where he, a lot of people would believe. He's very uh, firm but gentle. And he's just a really good leadership type, and that's really what liberty needs all over this country. So I had to compliment him uh, in the state convention was last month ironically, in uh, Las Vegas. But I, I just I had to compliment somebody of such uh, good character and leadership skills, if you will. So it was a good conversation, actually. Well, there are people who have been in this movement for a long time and who are stalwarts, and we can give them a lot of respect. But more important, we have to emulate what they did that worked and honestly appraise what they did that didn't and do not do those things. So you've got the one choice of politics, then you've got another choice. You can sit on your butt and do nothing and just complain about it and eat Cheetos and have a good time, you know, partay. That's wonderful. And you will get what you're given and you'll like it or not. And it's too bad. And so, I, you know, those people who are still on the sidelines, too bad. But there's another choice. I think a lot of it, and then I've got Harriet on the line, so we're going to bring in our good friend Harriet. All right. uh, And I think a lot of it, even – Still, I mean, more folks are waking up and more folks are starting to feel empowered. Uh, but I think that a lot of it, at least, you know, you know people that I speak with, um, you know, outside of the different events and things I go to, is that they just feel like, why? There's just there's still an, an apathy, a dragging apathy out there where a lot of folks still think that uh, their efforts don't matter. And I hear, you know, pretty continually where they're saying, like, you know, you know it doesn't matter. Why should I? Uh, waste my effort, I'll be better off concentrating uh, my efforts on, you know, me and mine. You know, you know their work, well, their family, just concentrating on themselves. I, I'm never going to tell somebody not to put their, their, their self first or their family first, although I have a 
great deal of admiration for people, and I try to be this sort of person, not that I succeed, who puts the welfare of of what's best for us, for us as individuals first. Um, there are sacrifices that are required. If you're not willing to do anything, you just want to sit around and do nothing except what's selfishly good for you, go for it. And you'll have a choice. You can be a victim. You can be a a slave, a creature of the power of brokers, the elite, the cronies, the statists. It's the same as royalty. I don't care what label you pick. It's it's those people who want to run things and control you, and they will. And that's your choice. Or there's one final choice. You can wait till things get really, really, really messed up and hope that your military skills are going to get honed quick enough and that you're going to be able to go out there and fight. I'm afraid that that option is going to be the only one left if we don't get enough people involved and continue this winning streak in politics and make it bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's something I don't want to see because I'll tell you what, most people are not cut out to be warriors at all. Most people will die if they have to do that, or they'll be victims. I don't like those options. I'm a fighter. I'll go down blazing if it comes to it. I'd rather not. It's not something I enjoy. And I have friends and family members and lots and lots of neighbors and, and coworkers who are really decent people who don't deserve to have that choice where they can either be a victim of the Nazis, the Soviets, the Pol Pots, the uh, uh, Ahmadinejads, whatever, you know, victim or a soldier fighting in a desperate struggle where blood is shed. Do we have to have that choice? So if you don't want to get involved in politics, know what your other two options are and embrace them. Okay, you're either going to have to kill or be killed or sit on your cat, be be shoved into a cattle car. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and, uh, okay, I'm going to go ahead and at this point bring in Harry, and then I've uh, been chatting as well with Cindy, who will be joining us shortly. And I guess you'll uh, tell us more about what uh, she's been working on or at least uh, paying attention to uh, tonight before coming on to the show. Uh, so, but let's go ahead and let our uh, good friend Harry in. Thank you very much, Harry, for coming to the show. How are you? Hi. Hi. Yeah. Is Cindy uh, listening to the show now, Robert? Because I want her to hear uh, this she, too. Oh, uh, well, she's not on. Uh, she's not on yet. So she's uh, working on something now. She'll be on shortly. But uh, go ahead. I know you had a question or comment for our guest, and so and she's gonna try to get in so she can make uh, yeah, have a little conversation with Marissa before she's got to go. Uh, but let's go ahead oh. and bring it over to you, and uh, hopefully we'll hear from Cindy soon. Go ahead, Terry. All right. Th- uh, this oh, is and I see Harriet. Yep. Uh, she is on. Harriet, no worries. I uh, just seen her okay. uh, come onto the line, okay. so she'll be able to hear it too, and we can discuss it later on the show. Go ahead, Harriet. All right. Hi, I'm Harriet from Florida, and um, I wasn't planning on talking this evening, but I am very, very shocked and disgusted. Um, I heard yesterday at a um, meeting that. Um, I had just been to a convention in Disney World um, last month, and uh, I was staying in a very, very big hotel resort, had a good time, blah, 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 and all that. Uh, Now the information is that Disney World has fired about 1,500 employees and have 
imported 1,500 or more new employees who are working on a school program, a work program, uh, with uh, apparently temporary um, visas, illegals, whatever they are, uh, here in America. And uh, so now we have 1,500 employees that are American, Florida residents, because Florida is very adamant on the E-Verify program. Uh, so now what are, we go- what are those 1,500 people going to do is they'll have to file for unemployment, and there, there will go our, our taxes um, to be increased. So uh, it, it is very, very discouraging, and people were, you know, blah, 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 all last night and today. And so I just thought I would bring it up for people who are in Florida or coming to Florida. Uh, and also there's the language barrier, and so you're going to have to deal with that. And uh, so I uh, wanted to bring up that, and I'm not telling anyone not to come to Florida, not to go to Disney World, but just to be aware of what you're going to be faced with and meeting up with once you get here. I'm going to see if I can get through to the governor appropriately and professionally with um, just a little note about this and uh, also maybe get a uh, list of people who will join me in my uh, contact to him. Because if this this goes through in this state, it'll follow through in other states, Disneyland and wherever there's a big resort area, because um, they pay these people under under minimum wage because they're giving them all this amenities and also um, money and scholarships to go to our universities and our students here in Florida have to wait in line to get into the universities. So that's what I what I have to bring you this evening. Well, I hadn't heard about um, actually the, uh, the situation at Disney World. Um, so I can't really uh, I comment on that. Um, I think it's one vision that I had heard just from um, you know me seeing a couple of posts on it uh, on social media um, was that those who were uh, displaced um, were given ah. opportunities for uh, you know retraining. Um, and looking at uh, higher positions within the company, um, but that right. of course could be speculation. So I can't really, um, I specifically speak on that issue. Um, I mean, that's definitely an issue, and I, I, I did hear that they were also uh, the Florida State Governor was looking into um, the reality of it. The governor is looking into it. Okay, well, I'm going to, uh, you know, follow up on that. But the the thing is, now I'm not saying that. It's anything against the, the students that are coming here on Visa for Education. I'm not saying that as anything negative. What I'm saying is we come first. Our, our citizens come first. And why should people be removed from a job, have to file for unemployment, have to job search, and take in people who do not, who are not uh, residents of Florida or of the United States? That that's my issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I think you know that that definitely is a problem when you're um you know displacing so many people that are, are losing their jobs and you know you don't want them to have to file for unemployment and just fall into the trap of welfare. Um, so I guess in, in that right right so right. to you know the, hold on here let her finish. Yeah, 
uh, less uh, regulations uh, with the government, you know, making it easier for there to be uh, more job growth. Um, so that way, it's, you know, you don't have to have situations of people losing their jobs um, with uh, immigrants right. coming that's in. And, and that's kind of, um, you know, when it, when it comes down to it, um, that's the real solution we need to be looking for is finding ways to just improve the job market so that way people aren't displaced. Uh, we can bring in immigrants um, and give them jobs or they're able to find jobs uh, without, you know, uh, making anyone else unemployed. Well, I'm not I'm not going to be surprised. I hadn't heard and I don't have any intentions of going that the direction, but uh, it may wind up where uh, there'll be a standoff or there'll be, some support in um, residents and U.S. people in the U.S. not to uh, patronize um, a Disney World. That it may mm-hmm. go, it may go that far. I don't know. I hadn't heard. I just heard this yesterday, and I've been shocked. <laughs> yeah, it'll be interesting to follow that story just to see how um, you know just the general community um, reacts to that. Right. Exactly. Without- well, that'll be interesting, and perhaps, uh, as I said, my plan was <laughs> actually literally uh, this time next month, it might even be to the day, um, you know, maybe a couple days before that, because I'm, I'm leaving down to go to Florida next July 3rd, going to spend the uh, 4th of July with uh, my brother down there, and then uh, we're going to spend one day where I'm going to bring my take my daughter to Disney World. So who knows, maybe if... Uh, I hear more in the news by then. Perhaps if it's still a story by then, I'll make sure I bring a recording device with me and see if I can yeah. do some uh, interviews and, uh, and and play some yeah, of those yeah. uh, those interviews on the show. That'd be uh, be interesting. Right. That'll definitely be something I'll keep in mind. But we are to, we only have about twenty minutes left before uh, Marissa's got to go for the evening. So I want to give everyone at least an opportunity to speak with her for a little bit uh, tonight. And so let's go ahead and bring Cindy on the show. Thank you very much, Cindy, for coming to the show. How are you tonight? Hi. I'm sorry I'm late. Hi, Cindy. And, uh, hi there, Miss Harriet. How are you? Okay, honey. You heard I feel <laughs> right in your hometown. <laughs> yeah. And, Marissa, it's good to have you on. Um, I do have a question for you. I Even though I just got here because I had some uh, – Robert knows what I'm talking about, but I had some Volusia Soil and Water – conservation district business to attend to and I just got finished with that a little while ago and then I started listening I had caught the part of this um, documentary on um, the bailouts back you know in late 2000s and uh, all that hoopla that went on and one thing that they mentioned on there uh, was that uh, a lot of those people who left their position in those big banks and like Lehman Brothers and AIG and, and other, you know, people that got uh, bailouts and all, they wound up uh, getting jobs in the, our top universities, our, um, our uh, Ivy League universities. Um, you mean the ones who didn't jump off of buildings? Yeah, the <laughs> ones that didn't jump off buildings. They ended up... <laughs> Well, you know, some people were le- um, left holding the bag and, and, and were uh, crapped on by their own people, and then others walked away with hundreds of millions of dollars worth of uh, bonus money. Um, and mm-hmm. I was just wondering if Marissa had, um, you know, uh, you're, you're, in a, you're at, um, let's see, where, where are you again? You're at Mexico uh, State? Mexico. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
what are the professors like there as far as finance professors are they um are they feeding y'all the Kool-Aid or <laughs> what are they doing there? <laughs> uh, well, I'm I'm a, actually a kinesiology major. Um so I I haven't taken yeah, so any Please tell us what classes. that is. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> kinesiology um it's basically um the kinetics of, of human movement. So it's typically for uh, physical therapy, uh, occupational therapy, allied healthcare field. Um I I'd like planning to go into healthcare policy research. Um, and just trying to use a clinical background in analyzing current healthcare policy issues, specifically the Affordable Care Act. Um, so I, I haven't, you know, I had the opportunity to uh, take any finance classes or really see what the finance professors are all about. Um, I, I can speak to, um, you know, the economics department. Um, I have an economics minor, and um, most of the economics professors tend to be uh, typically very Keynesian, uh, very focused on um, government intervention mm-hmm. for fixing market failures. Um, I've actually been really lucky that one of our professors is also um, in, in the economics department is a libertarian. Um, he uh, subscribes to you know Austrian economic theory, um, and he teaches a lot of the introductory economics courses. Um, so it's really nice to have a professor who uses um, you know common sense and, and, and logic uh, when it comes to looking at uh, basic economics. Um, so that's um, been kind of my experience. But you typically have very liberal economics professors, uh, with the exception. Um, but I, I couldn't tell you very much about our, our finance. Yeah. Well, and, speak, and speaking of that, Marissa, uh, uh, if I may, uh, Cindy, uh, we've actually interviewed a guy some time ago, uh, Mark Thornton. Um, I was actually just corresponding with him the other day uh, about a book perhaps to add to their uh, library they have online. And actually we'll be having uh, the book that I am uh, – talking about we're going to have the author of that book uh coming in on the 27th and that's a michael gary blonick you know we'll be talking about the book um you know this book on the 27th and so i've been corresponding with uh mark thornton from the mises institute who uh what they do is they promote uh austrian economics so we had him on the show some time ago uh you could probably check back in the archives uh here on blog talk radio for, for bard's logic uh, just look for, you know, the show that has uh, from the MICE, or Mises, he corrected me on that, <laughs> the Mises uh, <laughs> Institute of uh, Austrian Economics. Uh, so check that out. And um, we'll, uh, I believe it's uh, Democracy in Business is the name of the book uh, that our guest will be discussing. And so that's going to definitely be interesting to have him on uh, as well. So if you're interested in uh, checking that out with the Austrian economics, uh, yeah, check out that link in our archives. We, we go ahead. Yeah, and I definitely about that. will. Um, well, uh, w- w- you know, you're going to be dealing with, if you ever get into a, uh, you know, a policy position, you know, where you can be, uh, you know, working towards um, – Good policies with healthcare. Good healthcare policies. Um, you know, you're gonna you're gonna run into this government stonewall um, where they know what to do, they know what's right to do, but they just refuse to do it. And and you know we're you know we we all here have different varying um, uh, theories on why they they won't do it, but uh, you know. 
good luck with that is all I wanted to say. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually um, I'm a, currently interning at the Cato Institute this summer in Washington, awesome. D.C., um, so I'm really just kind of, um, you know, diving into a lot of the research, a lot of the issues that currently sound with, um, you know, Medicaid and, and different uh, welfare entitlement programs concerning health care. Um, and, you know, a lot of times, you know, we, we realize, we see how um, ineffective a lot of these policies are, specifically Medicaid, and we wonder, you know, why they're still um, being used, you know, why, you know, the government hasn't stopped using them yet. Um, and I think Follow the problem the is that... Yeah, it's money, and the problem is that, you know, it's, these are programs with good intentions, but regardless of how good those intentions are, you know, we can't keep failed programs alive just because of good intentions. And, and you know, you brought up the, the money, um, you know, looking at who the real beneficiaries are. Um, you know, typically, on average, um, Medicaid recipients, uh, you know, the people who are supposed to be the true beneficiaries of these programs, are only receiving about um, 40 cents out of every dollar that is spent on these programs. Um, so you look at who the real beneficiaries are that are receiving the bulk of that um, spending. And a lot of times it tends to be uh, the uh, insurance companies or the, the doctors or healthcare providers um, that are subsidized, that are the ones that are really benefiting from it. And, of course, they're not going to fight it when they're making more money off of it than um, the recipients, the ones that were you know, trying to help, the ones who are impoverished. I realize it just kind of uh, comes back down to cronyism and corporate welfare and, and these corporate subsidies um, to these uh, insurance companies and providers, not the people who need the health care. Yeah, well, until we get rid of some of our uh, wonderful campaigning laws, I don't see ever <laughs> an end to that. So, mm-hmm. Are you referring to uh, like campaign finance? Yeah. Okay, yeah, again, because... that's, you know, another issue that's been really big lately, you know, campaign finance reform, um, wanting to cut back on spending. I um, personally actually um, do not really think that, you know, uh, restricting um, campaign finances is the best solution, uh, which I know is not always the most popular position. Um, but the way I see it is that typically incumbents uh, are already at an advantage uh, when it comes to uh, campaigns and, and elections because they already have the name recognition, they're already in office, they already have all of these things going for them that makes it very easy for them to get reelected. And when you restrict um, campaign financing, uh, really it just keeps those incumbents in office because it makes it harder for, um, you know, fresh faces, new candidates um, to be able to go into office. Well, you know, you've got it exactly right there. Um, the, the money that we spend on politics is a drop in the bucket. It, it sounds like a lot of money. Oh, it's a billion dollars for a candidate to run for president and win. A billion dollars. We spend that in a week on junk food. I mean, it's not a lot of money. It seems like but it. But junk food is much more tastier. Junk food is much tastier, Dan. <laughs> the, the rules of the, the U.S. Constitution say the states have the right to make up their own election laws. So the state constitutions, we have to look at those. Now, Pennsylvania's constitution, which I, I always tout as wonderful, if you guys get a chance to read it, read Article 1, written by William Penn, amended only once by Ben Franklin. It's perfect. It's better than the U.S. Constitution. All the, the stuff that came after, I'm not too fond of, but that stuff is immutable. And we don't follow it. It says, among other things, that free and fair elections are guaranteed. They have to be free and fair. That's pretty easy to understand, even in today's language versus yesterday's language. 
It's not free <laughs> and fair in the state of Pennsylvania when you have to have a exorbitant number of ballots uh, or petition signatures to get on as a libertarian mm-hmm. or a constitutionalist or any other party, a Green Party for that matter, if you wanted to, compared to being right. a party. I mean, if I wanted to run for governor, I, I was working with a guy who was running for governor last time, and he managed to almost get on to the primary ballot for a Republican uh, with 2,000 signatures. 2,000 is what it took for across the entire state. Now, you had to have a certain number and percentage of all the 67 counties we have. But if you wanted to be on as a uh, libertarian, um, which is a minor party here, it's not a major party, that's how they they say it's not for Democrats, it's not for Republicans, it's for major parties. And the major parties defined as who got the most votes last time. So it's designed not to allow any sort of change. You had to have something like 19,000 signatures. 19,000 signatures that would pass muster means you've got to get at least 38,000 signatures, and you better bet that they're going to challenge them. So maybe you need another 38 on top of that. And considering the cost, even if you use volunteers, of just mailings, just handouts, just gas money Mm -hmm. for vans, pizza for people to eat when they're putting in long hours on phone lines, the phone lines themselves, we can do all that. But we've got to make it so that it's a level playing field for anyone who wants to run for office. And I guarantee if people had a choice right now, they're so disgusted with the way things are run. If they had a choice in a lot of districts, not everyone, unfortunately, and there are a few good people out there. But if they had the choice between instead of Bozo A and Bozo B, and by that I mean to be uh, to, to say Democrat and Republican, if they had a choice between another Republican or another Democrat or a libertarian, somebody who was honest, somebody who had not sought power and money their whole life, somebody who did not spend every single day of their life since their college years or even earlier pursuing politics, trying to make it a career, somebody who's actually done something in the world and doesn't want the job, who we had to twist arms to get to run. I bet those people get in because that's what's getting in right now. That's what we're yeah, putting in you know, at local level. Let's go ahead and bring it to Marissa because, uh, unfortunately, uh, I mean, Marissa, of course, you are more than welcome to stay as long as you like. I mean, we still got plenty of time to show, but I know we had uh, uh, the time. So, yeah, you're welcome to stay as long as you like. But go, uh, but go ahead, Marissa. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, and, you know, I just wanted to kind of bring up a, you know, personal anecdote with this. Um, I definitely understand uh, where you're coming from. Um, last year it was uh, – well, I guess it was about a year and a half ago now um, – I was working – on a U.S. Senate campaign in New Mexico. And a guy I was running was a good friend of mine. Um, He's a libertarian um, running through the Republican Party because, unfortunately, in New Mexico, we have a closed primary. Um, So you really can't run as anything other than a Republican or Democrat. Um, You know, really good guy. I I liked what he stood for, and it was the first, um, you know, politician that I ever, you know, got behind and, 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 you know, worked on a a campaign for. Um, And it was all grassroots. You know, I think in uh, the... Or so that we were campaigning, uh, we spent less than so we spent about sixty thousand um, dollars on a U.S. Senate campaign. I believe the average is at least a, a couple million dollars. Um, but you know, we, we spent very little money. It was just you know all volunteers, and I thought I volunteered about uh, seventy hours a week. You know, getting up in the last month before the election. Um, but you know, it, that's all it was: was volunteers who just believed in in you know our message, who believed in the candidate, and he was someone that never wanted to run for office. Um, you know, he was really big on the Constitution. He was a lawyer. He worked in the district attorney's office and was approached 
uh, to run um, by a, a political action committee because they liked um, his ideas and thought that he would be a good candidate. And they had to, you know, it's very hard to convince him because he had no interest in being a politician, but he felt like it was just, you know, his duty to try to change the direction that New Mexico was going, um, be a voice uh, for New Mexicans within the federal government. Um, and it was really difficult because, you know, although we had the right candidate, we had the right message, um, we had a lot of grassroots support, we were going up against an established Republican who uh, was, a, you know, a millionaire um, who funded his own campaign, spent, you know, over $400,000 um, in four months of campaigning um, because he wanted to be a career politician. He'd been running for office since the last three or four election cycles and hadn't won. Um, but that was just his goal was just to become a politician. Um, and, you know, he beat us in the primary because he had more money. Uh, he was able to pay for TV ads. He was able to have mm-hmm. fully paid uh, campaign staff. Um, and that's the kind of what gets frustrating why a lot of people are just very discouraged with politics and find it disgusting. I myself found it disgusting um, how, you know, it didn't really matter who was a better candidate at that point or who was a better person. It mattered who had more money. Um, so I can understand people can get very frustrated uh, myself included, and why people, you know, tried to call for campaign finance reform to take the money out of it. Uh, but when you're looking at, you know, having to pay for advertising um, or paying campaign staff, um, money definitely becomes a part of it. Um, so it's just kind of looking at ways that we can really just get the message out there, um, especially giving third parties uh, a seat at the table. And I know that's something that uh, Gary Johnson has been working on with his uh, Our America initiative of, of giving third party seat at the table uh, was trying to get that 5% of votes in the presidential uh, elections. Um, so that's definitely something that I, I think is important. It's just letting people know that there is something other than that typical right versus left, um, you know, uh, paradigm. Um, that they don't have to identify as a Republican or a Democrat. That there are other parties out there that they're just not aware of. Um, that's where I was in high school. I had never heard of you know, other parties besides Republicans and Democrats, and I didn't feel that I, I fit into either, so I just didn't care to be involved because I thought there was no place for me. Um, so I think it's important that people know that there are these other parties, that there is a place for them, know how to get involved without becoming discouraged by this constant right versus left um, money uh, in just fighting. Yeah, you know, I recall in, two, in 2012, uh, and Kelly, you know, uh, you, you know, you're here as well, and I know you were, uh, Cindy, uh, is that in 2012, you know, we interviewed a lot of folks, a lot of candidates from the uh, Constitution Party as well as uh, the Libertarian Party. Um, so we had, you know, both folks here. We've even had more recently some from the Green Party. We also, uh, are you familiar with, with uh, Free and Equal, uh, the organization uh, Free and Equal by Christina Toman? Founder of Christa Tobin, I should say. I know it. Yeah, it's uh, basically you know trying to bring uh, more alternative parties uh, to the fore. I know back in 2012, they had um, a, a party, an alternative party uh, debate in Chicago, and uh, we covered that debate here on the show. Uh, and once again, that, that can be found on the archives uh, where they had there. And I was actually you know, got the opportunity to meet one of the candidates. Uh, Virgil Goode from the Constitution Party. Now, there, let me tell you, there was a solid the earth guy if I've ever, you know, met one. Um, at least, you know, <laughs> that's who he was when uh, when I got the opportunity to meet and, you know, spend a couple hours with him. 
you know, so but that, that's uh, an organization maybe to check out because they really look to fight for uh, alternative parties, including, you know, the Libertarian Party, things of that nature. And I think we've got a, kind of a full representation of uh, the different parties here. And we've got a Republican here. We've got a Libertarian here, you know, on the panel. we also got Constitution Party. Uh, I myself is more of a, an independent, you know, kind of in some ways lean towards the Green Party. Um, of course, I wish they were more conservative. So <laughs> if they were more conservative, I probably would be card-carrying. But if they were conservative all, I should say, uh, would be a, maybe a card-carrying Green Party person. But uh, alas, at this point in time, it's not. Um, but I do want to, say, want to talk about one thing. I just want to pay a, play a quick audio clip, clip if I may, uh, about uh, the widening income gap. Now, this is something that Duke Gingrich was on. Uh, ABC this week uh, some time ago when they were talking about it. And I just wanted to see if I get your response on that real quick. Uh, sure. On that real quick. Uh, would that be all right with Marissa? Or I, I see it's almost about 11.30. Would you be able to spend uh, a little more time or do you really got to guess? Uh, I can probably stay for another uh, five minutes or so. Um, I, I do have to be up at 5.30 tomorrow morning. Um, so I'm, oh, I'm, wow. Yeah, no, I understand. Running a it, little it, it doesn't end, does it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, real definitely. quick. It's just, uh, yeah, Okay, and this is just a, just a two-minute clip, and then we'll sure. get your response, and then, of course, uh, whatever closing comments uh, you'd like to make before you have to go. But here you go. And, and let me ask you, uh, Mr. Gingrich, Speaker, um, when, you, when you look at that issue of inequality, and this is something he's put front and center, the Pope has, it's something, of course, that President Obama talks a lot about. We saw the story about homelessness sure. in New York, stark reality of, of, of the gap in, in, in the nation's biggest city. Is this an issue that Republicans should be talking about? Absolutely. I mean, how, how can you justify the level of wealth in those big towers in New York City right. and the level of poverty in those alleys? Absolutely. And without talking about government, say, surely a society that cared, that believed every person was endowed by their creator with the right to pursue happiness would come up with a better solution than 22,000 children that are homeless. And, and I, think, I think that the Republican Party has an obligation to rethink some of its indifference to the very poor. And I think the Democrats have an obligation to ask themselves, after 50 years of the war on poverty, isn't it clear the government is not a very good... Well, wait a minute, hold on. I, I just want to say one thing. Mr. Secretary, uh, the, the war on poverty, <laughs> which next year we are going to celebrate 50, the 50th anniversary, uh, in addition to the Civil Rights Act, the war on poverty was successful for a time. What has happened, however, over the last 30 years is that much of the uh, much of the ardor, much of the concern, uh, much of the, uh, the what propelled that war on on, a, on, on poverty uh, has dissipated. years of President Barack Obama, we see the the issue, the problem worse. Well, the problem is worse. I think it has something to do, perhaps, with the intransigence of the Speaker's party. Uh, because every time there was a jobs bill, every time there was an effort to expand uh, low-income housing, every time there was an effort Robert, to provide like, better opportunities for young people. We're talking about equal opportunity. Equal every, opportunity is every at, the major, basis of, every, uh, at the basis this is of this. What is <laughs> so, baloney? Here's the baloney. Every major city which is a center of poverty is run by Democrats. Every major city. Yes. Their policies have failed. But they're not willing to admit it. And the fact is it's the poor who suffer from that. Wait, 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 wait. You know, and, and we'll get your comment real quick. Just one comment I have to make about that is when I hear these, you know, a lot of times on these shows, people talking over each other, I'm so glad that we don't really do that here. 
on Bart's logic. <laughs> that drives me nuts when I hear people keep talking over each other. Uh, and that happens very rarely here. But go ahead, uh, give us some more comments on uh, that, on Newt Gingrich's comments, uh, Marissa, and then some closing comments for yourself uh, for tonight. And, of course, we want to all thank you for uh, the time you did spend with us this evening. And, you know, hopefully uh, in the future we'll be able to have you back on. Go ahead, Marissa. Sure. Well, one thing that I, I'm in agreement with him on that is, um, you know, just kind of looking at the way that uh, both the right and the left, you know, view the war on poverty is that, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, um, a lot of times we just see these failing programs, um, you know, like a welfare program um, that, you know, because they have good intentions, um, you know, we're very slow to um, get rid of those programs. And we can't keep a failing program alive and continue to throw money at it um, just because it has good intentions. I mean, I think that's kind of what we see happening now with the war on poverty. Um, and, you know, I, I agree with, you know, a lot of times, um, you know, Republicans and even libertarians are accused of hating poor people and only wanting the rich to become richer. Um, and I think that's not, you know, that's not true at all. We want, uh, you know, the poor to uh, escape poverty by achieving, you know, their own wealth without having to, you know, rely on government programs because when it comes down to it, government programs don't work. Uh, what was meant to be a safety net has really just become, you know, more of a, a hammock. You know, people are, are more comfortable living in poverty, but they're not actually coming out of poverty. You know, when the war on poverty started 50 years ago, um, it was, you know, actually beneficial. We saw a lot more strides, a lot more people that were um, gaining material wealth, uh, maybe uh, more people coming out of poverty. Uh, but now it's just become a lot more stagnant. We're not seeing that type of growth. We're seeing more money being thrown at it. We've thrown, you know, uh, trillions of dollars fighting the war on poverty, and we're not bringing people out of poverty. We're just making them more comfortable. Um, so I think that's definitely something that needs to be looked at and, and addressed. Um, and another thing that he brought up was the, um, you know, as he mentioned, was the, um, the uh, gap, I guess, between, um, you know, the wealth and, and the inequality there. Um, between you know, the, the very poor and the very rich. And while it's true that you do feel a large gap between, you know, those who, uh, you know, work on Wall Street and live in New York and you know, even live in D.C. And, and have a lot of money, um, you know, you can't really say that the poor are, um, you know, that much worse off because even if, you know, they're making significantly less money than those who are rich, they're still, you know, tremendously better off than the poor were 50 years ago. Um, because you see a lot more material wealth. Um, you look at, I believe, the uh, statistic is that two-thirds of um, impoverished people um, you know, that are in the poorest households have televisions in their homes. Um, you look at you know, a typical bundle of household items, including appliances, such as like a refrigerator, you know, dishwasher, a microwave, things that are uh, seen as essential to homes. Um, while you know, back when the war on poverty started, it would have taken you know, six, 700 hours of working a minimum wage job um, to be able to uh, purchase these things now only takes about 170 hours working to purchase those things. Um, so, you know, even if they are still poor, they're a lot better off in terms of material wealth um, and uh, purchasing uh, value than they were years ago. But that doesn't mean that poverty isn't a real thing. It just means that, you know, we need to focus on programs um, or just getting rid of programs that aren't very effective and focusing on ways that we can actually help people achieve their own wealth um, and help them to achieve their own um, economic prosperity rather than making it comfortable for them to uh, just exist in poverty. 
Um, so that's kind of, you know, my comments on, um, you know, his, his statement. Um, but, I mean, other guess for, for closing uh, remarks, I believe it's just important, you know, the, the work that I do on campus, uh, you know, like as I mentioned, we focus on getting students to care about these issues, uh, maybe focusing on things that are really important to them, such as um, NSA surveillance, you know, the war on drugs, national debt. And uh, the problem that we see a lot of times with youth is that um, they're very apathetic. That's something that I've encountered a lot at New Mexico State University. Um, it's not cool to care about politics, right? A lot of students would rather just kind of stick their head in the sand because they don't think it affects them. And, um, you know, the fact of the matter is that whether or not you care about politics or politicians, they care about you. And when students aren't active, when they don't care about what's happening, it makes it a lot easier for, um, you know, establishment politicians to do what they want. And um, these students end up not having a voice, not having a say, because they would rather uh, choose not to make their voice heard and then complain about it later. Um, so that's why, you know, our main focus on Americans for Liberty is just getting students involved, getting them to care about these issues, and giving them the resources and training necessary to become the leaders and voices, you know, so we can have a better tomorrow. Um, so I guess for any listening out there, if you know college students, if you are a college student that is interested in getting involved in this movement, just making your voice heard, and if you care about having a stronger future for yourself, um, I would highly encourage you to look out uh, or search out a chapter on your own campus of Young Americans for Liberty. Um, if there's not one existing already, I mean, we have uh, 600 chapters, or more than that now, over 600 chapters um, on college campuses throughout the United States. Um, it's really easy to start a chapter. We give you a lot of resources. You can start finding students who care about those issues that you do. Um, so please visit our website, yaliberty.org, um, and you can find a full list of chapters uh, that are already existing on college campuses and uh, find out how you can become more involved and our fight for liberty. Uh, but thank you so much for having me on. Um, thank you to everyone who participated. Um, I was really glad that I had the opportunity uh, to chat with all of you. Can, can I tell you a quick uh, inspirational story? Sure. Before you leave? All right. This is back in 1988. I was like 21 or 2. Um, <clears throat> Pat Robertson was running for president. For some reason, I seemed to like him. But we got number one on campus with our votes. And I went on from, uh, got elected, me and a buddy got, both got elected to go to the county convention. Then I went on to district as a delegate. But it wasn't as hard as I thought, and it was absolutely stunning. This was back mm -hmm. at Iowa State. I even got to meet the guy. But, it, you know, it was, I couldn't believe it, but I got the sense that I could actually change the world. It's not so distant. And it's inspired me to be an activist ever since, having a victory like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I think it's really important ahead, for people to realize that, um, you know, you don't need to be the politically elite. You don't have to, um, you know, be part of this, um, you know, superior class of politicians to be able to make a difference. I mean, the little things like that, you know, getting involved in local politics um, or even focusing or working on local ballot measures um, that can you know, increase individual liberty in your own town or county or state. Um, that's what makes a difference. That's how you can have your voice heard. Um, so I think it's important to realize that it's, you know, not all these politicians in D.C. that don't care what you have to say. I mean, your your voice can be heard. Um, you have to do a little bit of work for it. Oh, yeah. Glad you could join us. Yeah, yeah and thank you very much, uh, Marissa, uh, for coming on the show. And, yes, 
certainly. And then the link that I gave you earlier uh, that you want to pass out to your friends and things of that nature, definitely uh, let them know that the same link is the one they go to to hear the archive of the show uh, where they can access it that way too. So they'll be able to uh, get to the podcast uh, so that they can download it or listen to it at their leisure. So, yeah, I mean, one thing, for instance, is the technology we have today, you can uh, actually download the clip to your cell phone and listen to the uh, the show that way. So you can, you know, stop it, start it, you know, things of that nature, pause it, things like that. Uh, so definitely thank you very much, and hopefully we'll be have the opportunity to uh, bring you back on and then get some updates on uh, what you've been up to. Yeah, that would be wonderful. Thank you again so much. Um, I hope you have a, a wonderful evening. Thanks for Thank coming. you very much. You too. Take care, Marissa. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you. Good night. Bye. What campus was she on? Mexico. Uh, she is yeah. on the New Mexico State University. Okay, cool. Hey, you yeah, know, so I, you I know, wanted to... Go ahead, Cindy. I, I just wanted to say that, you know, when we were, we got started with the primary, uh, the the campaign finance laws, you know, there for a second, and then I didn't get a chance to redirect. But uh, anyway, um, I just want you guys Sorry, to know Cindy. that my primary, <laughs> my primary, my primary concern with the campaign finance laws as they are now is that we are allowing too much. Uh, we're, we're allowing foreign money to come into. I mean, huge amounts of foreign money to come into mm-hmm. our election through these packs. I mean, they can put money into anywhere. Um, PACs and and, um, uh, give it to corporations who will funnel it, you know, whatever they, I mean, there's tons of ways they can do it. And because of there is no, um, there's no caps on that, then you get people from other countries being able to influence our trade bills. And, I mean, you just look at the TPA and the TPP. Um, This may be good for, you know, other countries. It may be good for UN officials. Uh, because it gives them great power, uh, specifically great power over us. But for us, it's it's bad news because it gives um, it gives a completely unconstitutional powers to other nations and our president uh, over our trade relationships. Um, I don't know how much you guys know about it, but you know, according to the few people who have read the bill, which is another huge concern of mine, the secrecy behind this bill. The um, list of people who have read it is secret. Yes, uh, only only a very few have read it. And um, what they're saying is that it is scary. The little information they can bring out of there, uh, out of, in their secret room, um, where they have to go to to read it, um, and they're not even supposed to bring notes out of there. I mean, how stupid is that? And people are going to go vote yes on that? Look at all Marco Rubio, our senator from right here in Florida, voted to pass that bill. Now, you tell me what business he had of passing that bill when he has no idea what is even in it. Um, and, you know, it's this is the way it's been going ever since, you know, Miss Pelosi said, let's pass the bill so we can find out what's in it. No, I'm sorry. We need to know what's in the bill first. If our forefathers knew mm-hmm. what's going on right now, 
people, you know, bills that are 2,000 pages long and nobody nobody's reading them, full of unconstitutional laws. They they would absolutely, well, they'd start another revolution. They really would. I was because about to say that, are, Sandy. Yeah, that's exactly what they'd do. They'd say, hey, we're back. We may to, end up there. We're back to the king again, and uh, it's time to throw off this um, this tyranny. So, to me, uh, until we get the stop of we stop the flow of money, uh, and from the power hungry, um, you know, uh, crony uh, corporations, and from foreign entities, we're not going to have any success in rehabilitating our nation. We're not going to save our nation unless we do it from within. We've got to get the outside influences off our backs. Anyway, that's that's why I have a big problem with the, the campaign finance um, laws that we have now. You know, here's my take on the campaign finance. Uh, politics is the art of sales. That's what it is. You have, in honest politics or dishonest politics, you're still selling. And you know if you're going to be an advertiser or an actor or um, – you know, anything in business, you, you have to convince the other side to sign the contract, whether that's actually signing a contract or shaking hands or going and making a purchase. You have to be able to make it attractive to somebody enough so that they'll get off their hind quarters and go out there and spend some money or do something about it. Now, and there's plenty of examples in your local life and national life uh, all over the place of people who are able to make something attractive. They find something that people believe in or could or would believe in, and they uh, let's clean up the park. Let's have a motorcycle run for a charity for a three-year-old with leukemia. And 500 people show up or 1,000 people show up, and they raise 10 grand, 20 grand. They have a, a, a network, uh, you know, Children's Miracle Network or something up this way, uh, similar to stuff you've seen. It's local and, you know, maybe 10 counties. Um, and they raised like $2 million bucks in a day and a half. Okay? So that's all it is. Now, if you were able to phrase the, uh, the arguments in such a way that you wanted to get a certain candidate in office or a certain bill passed or a certain bill repealed, and you could do it attractively, Coercively, not, not coercive, not pushing them, not making them, but inviting them, enticing them, but with truth. And you could raise two million bucks in a weekend. You now have enough force in politics to be able to uh, uh, mount a credible campaign for Congress. And if you can continue doing that weekend after weekend, you got enough money to run for president after just uh, uh, two years. Seriously. Because money attracts money, success attracts success. People like to get on the bandwagon. We've been fighting here in Pennsylvania for a number of bills. I'm not going to bore all the listeners with all the details. That's not what this show's about right now. But we're, we're still fighting. We've won some. We've lost some. Some we continue to fight. We refuse to give up. And as the, the road show goes from town to town, to town, as there are more and more little events, more and more visits to the legislature, more and more people showing up at a high school auditorium to learn something uh, about property tax reform or Common Core or whatever it is, 
um, all of a sudden we take on a force that that didn't exist before, and we didn't make anyone do it. They came to us voluntarily, and they want to see something. They they want to to see a result. So it's not the money, but you're absolutely right about this TPP and the result that we're going to get from TPP. Um, they're from all reports that are credible, and I'm not talking the crazy stuff, from people who have actually seen the bill and are hinting real strongly, okay, it looks like this is going to be some sort of legalization of a European Union involving America and the Pacific Rim countries where they have the right to supersede our laws, to insist on immigration uh, from their countries on their terms, to uh, mm-hmm. say our health and safety regulations don't matter, to say that our our regulations involving, uh, or lack of same, involving firearms or uh, driving should be the same as theirs. And this is the fun part, folks. This is the part where I told you you've got your three choices. If we allow them to pass this now, then you're going to either have to put up with somebody in, well, Australia, maybe that wouldn't be too bad, but how about China? You you want somebody in China to tell you what to do, to insist that you're going to have to live this life because they decided they're not even elected over there. It's not even a democracy, much less a republic. Okay, um, they're communists. They're royalists. Families run the whole country. These small groups that keep all the power for themselves. That's going to be your choice if you don't get involved now and make a difference and and get TPP stopped. Okay, or what I think is a real danger, which means they're going to try and enforce that crap here. And a small group of people are going to say, no, you can't enforce it here. And the word will get out. Even if they shut off the internet, word gets out. Even before there was an internet, even before there were telephones, even before there was much in the way of, of anything but pony express word gets out. It takes a while, but it gets out. And once it gets out, you can't call it back. And that would spread. And we'd have people shooting at authorities, authorities shooting back. This is not good, folks. So wake yourself up. TPP is fast-track authority. Just ask yourself this. Why is it that after all that Obama has done that's unconstitutional, the rhinos in Congress are so desperate to hand him a chance to change everything and anything and that it's been in secret negotiations for six years? Mm -hmm. Their idea that says that uh, we can't let the secrets out because uh, some of the people who are party to this bill might actually know some of the details, and then uh, they might not like the bill. They might back out. We really need this. This is not going to improve us. This is going to turn us into a third-world country, we're going, which we're close to now. Okay, We're really getting close to that. Um, and why is it that they're agreeing with the secrecy? Are you telling me? That there's not one congressman or woman, not one senator. Well, I'm not too fond of anybody in the Senate right now. But not one has got the guts to go in there where you're not supposed to take notes and you're not supposed to read it. Somebody with a good memory who has a reliable reputation for being honest to go in there, read it, memorize some of the high points, just a dozen of the high points, the things that you know that they will never change if they pass this agreement, and come out there and go on national TV, go on the Internet, go on the social media, and immediately blow the frickin' whistle. What are they going to do to you? 
Are you telling me that you're afraid, Mr. Congressman or Congresswoman, you're afraid of being arrested on national security grounds for a trade bill? Are you afraid that your constituents won't stand up for you and hire lawyers for you and raise money for you? Well, guess what? Even if they're not, you're no damn good as an American. You took an oath, an oath that's much higher than most people have to take. You not only took an oath to serve, as those people in the military and in the police and the fire departments who've taken that oath do. You've taken an oath to, sub- to, to uphold the Constitution from a point of view of one of the parties to that document. Today, the Congress, just like the judiciary, just like the executive, is an actual party to the workings of that document. And if you won't do that, I swear to God... I'll see you in hell. And that's Ooh, not a wow. threat. That's pretty serious. That's, <laughs> for me, that's serious. And I'm not making a, an actual physical threat, okay? Believe me, I don't make threats. If it comes down to this, if they insist on pushing this through, if it's as bad as it seems like it is, and open warfare comes out, I know what side I'll be on. And believe me, I'm not going to pull any punches because somebody's got a title. Because they're the ones who are doing this to us. Don't force us into this. You will lose. You know, what's really frightening with the TPP is that the Republicans are trying to champion it. The Democrats are very upset. They were asking Obama months ago, hey, uh, we want to see this. Oh, they gave him a little bit, but not much. So it's kind of strange how the right goes left, the left goes right. Either party can sometimes be a statist kind of a thing. The TPP is pretty scary. Um Hey, I want to change the subject a little bit and first wish everybody, before it happens, I think it's Sunday, uh, happy Magna Carta Day. There we go. I remember the first time you, uh, uh, first time you said that to me, offered that to me, I was like, wow, it's the first time everyone's, anyone's ever uh, wished me a happy Magna Carta Day. But go ahead, Kelly. <laughs> it's also, yeah, well, it's also National Iced Tea Day. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. Iced Tea. What the, yeah, I, I'm reminded I have to get off the phone and get my local British friend because we're going to do a video on uh, wishing everybody happy Magna Carta Day. And people are like, well, what's the point of that? Well, Magna say, Carta was, yeah, happy Magna Carta Day. It'll be 800 years old on June 15th. And what is the significance of Magna Carta? Why would I do this? It's the first time in modern history where the law was placed above the king. That's the most significant part of Magna Carta. And since then, over 100 nations have pretty much fired their king and gotten the parliament with representation. And, of course, there are other things in the Magna Carta, trial by jury. Women's rights were respected because before, if you were a widow and you died, or I'm sorry, your husband died, but, of course, that would make a woman a widow, a widow um, you had to remarry to keep your land, whereas Magna Carta said no. Widows, they die? Or, I'm sorry. A woman becomes a widow. She gets to keep her land automatically. And so there was that. There was, um, of course, the grand jury, which is a barren group of 25, holding uh, the government to account to the law that was above them. So it's quite uh, amazing. And I'm I'm naming one of my mining equipment Honeymead, which that's where it happened along the Thames River when the king got run out of London. And here's a peace tree where the law would be above you, but you get your kingdom back. And then for uh, the other mining piece, I call it Langton. Langton is the um, Archbishop of Canterbury who penned the Magna Carta in Latin. And it's helped Great Britain last over 900 years. 
I mean, in, in, in how many how many nations uh, you put take a block of time a millennium long? How many nations survived nine hundred years? Uh, not very I many. See. All right, but so many nations rise and fall. But the simple precept of the law about the king, of course, the founding fathers knew about that. All right, that's that's Magna Carta. I want to go to uh, another topic now. Um, Let's see here. Real, real quick, Kelly, uh, just a programming note for the people out there who are listening. Uh, we've got about three minutes before uh, we go into what's called the extended period, in which if you're listening out there but have not called in, unfortunately your audio will be uh, cut off. You won't be able to hear of the rest of the show, in which we'll be going into the extended period here on Bard's Logic Political Talk. So give us a call at 347-945-7428. Uh, please do it within the next three minutes, or else you will not be able to hear the the rest of the show live. Of course, the rest of the or the remainder of the show uh, will be heard in the podcast. Uh, but if you'd like to I'll be able to hear it live, or or and or I should say, participate. Just give us a call at three four seven nine four five seven four two eight in the last three minutes, and then go ahead, Kelly. And then after that, I, I know I do this rarely, but I do have an article that uh, I found that I want to read, uh, and it is kind of a lengthy article, but we still have plenty of time, uh, but I do want to go ahead and, and read that. So, And this is in regard to the TPP or TTP that we were discussing. Um, and so go ahead, uh, Kelly, and then I'll bring it back uh, with that uh, article. Yeah, okay, well, you know, of course, the globalists, they have their Agenda 21, they have their common core, they have this all this blah, blah, blah. But one of the most important things they have to do is get control of the land. They've been trying through the environmental movement for quite some time, and the environmental movement in the counties comes through the planning department or the environmental health department, is what we name it. Not human health department, it would be the environmental health department. Anyway, I found a strategy. I don't know, I think I sent it to Cindy and maybe Dan. It's one sentence. I titled it, you know, one sentence that might cripple Agenda 21, a little asterisk on Agenda 21. I'm not an expert in it, so I really don't know. But the environmentalism, it can certainly cripple that. But one sentence, um, I'll get to that, but I have this little background. The co-compliance has come through, uh, found out since we last talked. In Sacramento City, there's 725 co-compliance situations, uh, cases. 725 in the city. And you read through them and it's like um, substandard building, substandard building, substandard building. Wait a minute. You can't apply new codes to old buildings, but they do. Oh, vacant building, vacant building, vacant substandard building. And, and the real estate novelist who told me about this, he said, yeah, the co-compliance people will drive down the street and they'll note uh, a vacant property. They come back a week or two later, still nobody there. They just kind of go in and they inspect this place like, where the hell is the warrant? And then they make it a co-compliance case. The one he's working on to buy has got a $22,000 lien on it. This is courtesy of the Community Development Department. This is what's coming. In my county, we pass at one of the most conservative counties on the West Coast. I tried to warn them. But, oh, they had to use it to get rid of the marijuana gangland growers. Anyway, very trickily, very Written with much trickery. Anyway, um, $1,000 a day is possible. And the author who wrote it, oh, wait a minute, we have law by agency. Law by agency, government agency. How about the citizenry? Oh, we got to three minutes to, to speak in front of the supervisors. But I figured out how to 
deal with this situation because um, it needs to be done because if we lose our land, we lose our independence, we lose our ability to provide for ourselves. Um, being raised from an Iowa farm, I realize this. So uh, the, the guy that wrote it is in a position, it's called the director of the Community Development Department. He heads four departments. That'd be the building department, planning department, environmental health, and flood. He is not licensed. He is not licensed. See, I'm an engineer. I take 20-some hours exams to be able to develop plans, and people pay me for it. Architects and uh, surveyors, mechanic contractors, electrical contractors, grading contractors, painting contractors have a license. But the guy that ultimately is responsible for the approval of the plans, nope, no license. But he does have a degree in natural resource management. Uh, okay, that's only one department. That's planning. What's going on here? How did he get in this position? And he's not from our county. So he wrote the co-compliance ordinance. He got it passed. And he's a really nice guy. He's actually a pretty neat guy. I kind of like him. But it's a position I have a real problem with. Why, why is this not being elected? Why is this position not elected? And why is it not licensed? Why does he review things that licensed professionals have to get a license for? What is going on here? Well, a friend said, well, what you have here is ideology over technology. So our solution to this is um, get with the supervisors, pass a local ordinance. The director of community development department shall be elected every two years and requires a state license relative to the construction industry. That means a painting contractor become he, a painting contractor had more experience than this joker. How do I know this? I took a set of plans in. He happened to be at the counter. He received them. And I says, oh, you want to see the plans? He says, I don't think I'd be able to understand them. Wait a minute. You're the top guy, and you're not sure you can read plans? All right. So anyway, here's the plan. Okay, there's more plan than just writing an ordinance meeting with supervisors. I've already got uh, several contractors just really upset, and they're laughing all at the same time. I'm going to get with a supervisor and bring with me about six, seven contractors, maybe an engineer, architect, and surveyor, and explain to them, look, construction is very complicated. This guy is licensed. What are you doing? Let's have it elected. Make sure he's licensed by the state. And when they hear from the various contractors and uh, other professionals, they're going to be like, what are we doing? Yeah, let's get him elected. Make sure he has a, a state license. And that way, the environmental agenda is going to be slowed down. Did I lose everybody? No, we're listening rapidly. We're just with it in. Oh, unfortunately, yes. it looks like we uh, unfortunately lost Cindy. Uh, <laughs> uh, perhaps her phone uh, gave out. Us. I'm sure she'll send you a message soon. Go ahead, uh yeah, so I'm, I'm I have, finished, I have, basically, uh, but basically, let me finish here. But basically, I'm, we're going to do another uh, local video, local online paper. We packed the supervisor's chambers out the hall. So me with the contractors, their friends, and the video, we're going to pack the chambers again. And basically, the supervisor's going to be like, uh, yeah, we need to pass this because we really made a blunder here. Instead of appointing some guy from out of the county, well, now people inside the county are getting elected from people in the county who are professionals. And they're elected every two no, years. And so we're going to go ahead. There's a problem with that. What? A potential problem. 
Um, you know, I'm not in favor of uh, government by experts, by bureaucrats. And you said and this is a bureaucrat who is making laws, okay? Right. Which he has, and he's ignoring due process laws, like you know, trespass warrants, things like that. He's mm-hmm. a government official. Mm-hmm. It's not just trespass when you walk into a building. Uh, if you're a government official, then you're breaking the Constitution. You need a warrant. It says so. All right. Right. People should be secure in their their effects and you know homes effects papers etc. But I don't respect experts, and I have no problem with appointing or electing people who are not experts. All right, experts are part of the right, the uh, way that the status have got us here by insisting that these impartial experts are going to make good decisions. Look, there are there are very if you're going to build a house, you have to know what you're doing. And there are people who don't have any certi- certification at all who know how to build a house. And there are people who have certification who build crappy houses. It happens all the time. They cut corners or they don't know what they're doing or they went to school and it didn't mean anything. Or they got a degree. That doesn't mean anything. Licensing, again, it's the government coming in and saying, this person knows what they're doing. I cannot tell you the number of lawyers, doctors, veterinarians, uh, you name it. A license who I have gone to and been profoundly disappointed with the level of, of expertise that they were alleged to have provided that they're supposed to know and they don't know jack crap. You know, well, in most the construction doctors, industry, in the construction industry, if you don't know what you're doing and you're blundering, you're out of business. Oh wait, you didn't say that this has to be a person who is successful in the construction well, industry. Well, you here, said it's somebody who has to be I, licensed. Right. Well, what I'm saying, though, is, is you, you have to learn the trade, the terminology, the practices, the everything, what is safe, the codes, and blah, 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 blah. A ton of stuff you have to know to pass a test. The only way you can know it is to be in the field for like five, six, seven years. Okay. You have to Listen, know what you're doing. It makes sense if I'm going to elect somebody to uh, run a fiscal office that I get somebody who doesn't have an eighth-grade education, that I get somebody who actually has some experience as well as perhaps some some uh, book learning, you know, and degrees in auditing. If if it's an auditor job or a treasurer's job, I really like the idea of somebody who is a CPA who has a successful business as a CPA, or any number of other related fields. And if it's somebody who's a code enforcement officer, um, which we're advertising for here in our township, we need a code enforcement officer. I don't know why we have to have codes for everything, but they've got them. Have you had one before? And yeah, we've had codes for a long time. Oh, you mean Have an you officer? Had code enforcement yeah, officer. Yeah, in the past. Uh, it doesn't pay very much, and it requires somebody who actually understands what those codes mean, which, practically speaking, means somebody who's in the building trades. Okay? I don't have any problem with requiring that somebody knows what they're talking about if you're hiring them for a specific job. But if you're hiring somebody to uh, run a township, Okay. What you need to do is hire people who are honest, who are smart, and who are going to do a good job and be open about it. They have no business with those laws and ordinances as they are. They shouldn't replace this guy with somebody who is uh, a licensed and uh, you know vetted by the academia and, and some licensing board. They should eliminate the position and, and abolish those ordinances. Those laws are just plain wrong. The solution is, is, to, is simpler. It's get rid of the laws that are, are the problem. Well, we, You're not going to well, be able to administer them fairly. 
What do you mean you yeah, can't? Not in this county. No, not in this county. There's no much. There's too much pressure. But I, if I oh, had it can't. my way, no, no, I, I refuse if, to accept that. I'm not saying that it's going to be no, easy. I okay. If I had it my way, I would add into that ordinance that they have to have 10 years of private sector experience. Any government worker got to have 10 year related private sector experience. If I could do a statewide initiative, I I would. But I have to make the ordinance simple. One sentence. The soups won't. If the supervisors won't approve it, we're going to do a county initiative. We're going to shove it down their you know, throats. I don't care. Kelly, <laughs> Kelly every single uh, person, including myself, has blind spots. We all have things that, that we just don't see. And when it comes to engineers, what they don't see is that the impossible is possible. Because they're engineers and they're practical and they say no. Uh, the laws of <laughs> physics. Do you know how many times we surprise people? Do you know how many times we surprise people? Uh, you surprise people with things that don't seem possible, but physics say say it can be done. Okay, that you can cantilever something so it looks like it's it's hanging in the middle of nowhere. Wow, that's amazing. But physics says it can be done. You can have a rotating house that uses um, a lawnmower engine and some ball bearings to move. You know. 50 tons of house around on, on a, you know, yeah, yeah, I've seen it done. It's amazing what engineers can do. They can well, I tell, clients, I, I tell them right up front, I said, well, can we do this? Can we do this? They look, here's my general answer. We can do anything if you have enough money. If you want to build a house out in the ocean on piers, 10, 10 miles out, sure, we can do that. You just got to have enough money. Can you make that <laughs> house in the ocean um, appear tomorrow out of uh, paper without well, money. Well, I also, I also tell clients that some of these things you're asking for is too expensive. Let's go right. with some standard the, stuff here. What I was trying to say do. is, and I, I was using your profession as an analogy, is that we all have blind spots and that nothing is necessarily impossible if you can conceive it and you can convince others to make it happen. Now, I'm not saying that's always good ideas. You know, the, 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 this could be the same as fads or, you know, uh, crazy uh, uh, runs on the, on the market. You know, like the people get crazy about uh, pet rocks or tulips in Holland or, or right now you know, bonds and derivatives, for God's sakes. Uh, but what it comes down to is that in the realm of human beings, there is nothing that's impossible. Things that everyone agrees cannot be done could be done if they all agreed it could be done. So your job is to convince people that this can be done first, and then second, that it should be done. Once they say to themselves, because even if you tell them it should, if they still think that it can't be done, they won't they won't invest anything in it. They'll fight well, against so simple. it. Well, so I pack the supervisors' chambers and out the You're hall. doing good. That's and good. And we got everybody there, but three people were against the ordinance. We've got the support. Not no question. It's fresh into people's mind. They will show up. And put so the what you need to do is apply pain. All right, politicians oh, big, are big very time, simple creatures. Right, right, big time. Here's the pain. The pain is, oh shit, we made a really big mistake when this when this supervisor, her name is Grace, she's like sweetheart, when she sits around the room and listens to all these contractors, and she realizes how complicated everyone, electrical, mechanical, civil, excavators, roofing, fire. Uh, you need a contractor license for a fire sprinkler system. When she realizes from all these different professions that it's very, very complicated, 
then we're going to put the squeeze on her because she's like, well, I was just trying to be nice. Well, you put somebody in who's absolutely unqualified. You're in pain now because if this, this – well, the video is going to go viral like it did last time. You're you're going to be like, oh, crap, I may not get reelected if I don't vote for this. That's the pain. That's putting their thumbs in the screws. When just, and the contractors are going to well, be Well, if serious. you're talking about contractors, you – if you're talking about contractors, you should be talking about money because that's what contracting is all about. And and contractors are generally people who um, know a lot of rich people who invest, who buy houses, who who buy and sell real estate, um, people who provide, you know, uh, services. You know, somebody who provides concrete in your county has got money. Somebody who provides wood uh, has money. These people need to step up. You need to convince them to step up, to just abolish the entire ordinance period, not just the one appointing somebody who's not qualified, but the idea that government should go in there and micromanage all these places. The only thing that they need to be concerned about is not improving things under some general, you know, uh, wonderful, oh, we're going to just make this a fantasy land. This is going to be a beautiful little place. No, that's not their business. Their business is real simple. If it creates harm, or has the serious actual potential to create harm to everybody, you got bad electricity, it could set the town on fire. You got bad water, you won't be able to put out the fire. You got bad roofs or bad walls, anybody in there or next to there could get crushed when it falls down. I don't have any problem with that sort of code stuff. If somebody wants to build a five story building, it needs to be a five-story building that will stay five stories for a long time, even in 70-mile-an-hour winds and, uh, I guess, since you're on the West Coast, earthquakes. And that's fine. But anything else, it's none of their damn business. And that's you've got to get the message to them. It's not their damn business. They get into everyone's business about every damn thing, and the whole idea is not to improve things. It's for them to take control. And then when they have control, when everything you do is potentially illegal, when you commit felonies, administrative felonies, every single day without knowing it, then they have the power Mm -hmm. to arbitrarily decide they're going to pick on you. They'll pick on you first. They go after people who are their enemies who oppose them, then they go after people who have stuff they want. And after they've gotten rid of the people who are, or at least silence, the people who are their enemies and people who have you know, the stuff they want, then they start using it to arbitrarily reward their friends. And every now and then they'll just pick on somebody just because, just to keep everybody on their toes. This is what Stalin did. Exactly. So nip it in the bud there. No, I wish you could. See, there's your Go ahead, Kelly, and then I'm going to go over to this article that I found uh, that I want to read uh, real quick. Go ahead, Kelly. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm done. I'll, I'll keep you guys no, updated. Okay. No, no, that's fine. I appreciate it. No, this is, a, you know, on the TPP that you folks uh, were bringing up. It's actually an article I found on Breitbart.com. Uh, uh, the article's revealed the secret immigration chapter in Obama's trade agreements. What we have here it says, Discovered inside the huge uh, tranche of secretive Obama trade documents released by WikiLeaks are key details on how the technically any Republican voting for Trade Promotion Authority, TPA, that would fast-track trade deals like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP, trade deal would technically also be voting to massively expand 
President Obama's executive authority when it comes to immigration matters. The mainstream media covered the WikiLeaks documents dumped extensively, but did not mention the immigration chapter contained within it. So Breitbart News took the documents to immigration experts to get their take on it. Nobody has figured out how big a deal the documents uncovered by WikiLeaks are until now. See below. The President's Trade and Services Act, TISA, documents, which is one of the three different close-to-completely-negotiated deals that would be fast-tracked making up the President's trade agreement, show Obama trade, in fact, unilaterally alters the current U.S. immigration law. TISA, like TPP, or the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, TTIP, deals are international trade agreements that President Obama is trying to force through to final approval. The way he can do so is by getting Congress to give him a fast-track authority through TPA. TISA is even more secretive than TPP. Lawmakers on Capitol Hill can review the text of TPP in secret, secured room inside the Capitol. In some cases, can bring staffers who have enough <laughs> security clearances. Both TISA, no such draft is available. Voting for TPA, of course, would essentially ensure the final passage of each TPP, TTIP, and TISA by Congress. Since the history of such fast-tracking deal. Any deal that ever started on fast track has been approved. Roughly 10 pages of this TISA agreement documented leak are specifically about immigration. The existence of these 10 pages on immigration in the trade and services agreement make it absolutely clear in my mind that the administration is negotiating immigration. And for them to say they are not, they have a lot of explaining to do based on the actual text in the agreement, Rosemary Jenks, the Director of Government Relations at Numbers USA, told Breitbart News following her, interview, her review of these documents. Obama will be able to finalize all three of the Obama trade deals without any congressional input if Congress grants him by passing TPA. Fast Track lowers the vote threshold in the Senate and block Congress from amending any trade deals. And also, since each of these three deals are pretty much entirely negotiated already, it wouldn't lead to any more congressional involvement or transparency with each. The Senate passed the TPA last month, so it's up to the House to put the brakes on Obama's unilateral power. The House could vote as early as Friday on Fast Track, but maybe head it into next week. By all counts, it's going to be a very tight vote and may not pass. It remains to be seen what will happen in light of leaks about these things, like the immigration provision of TISA, which deals with 24 separate parties, most different nations, but also the European Union. It is focused on increasing the free flow of services worldwide, and with that comes labor. Labor means immigration and guest workers. This trade, these are quotes here, this trade and services agreement is specifically mentioned in TPA as being covered by the fast track authority. So why would Congress be passing a Trade Promotion Authority Act that covers this agreement? 
if the U.S. weren't intended to be a party to this agreement. So at the very least, there should be specific places where the U.S. exempts itself from these provisions, and there are not, explained Jenks. She emphasizes that this is a draft, but at this point, certainly the implications is that the U.S. intends to be party to all or some of the provisions in this agreement. There is nothing in there that says otherwise, and there is no question in my mind that some of the provisions in this trade and services agreement would require the United States change its immigration laws. In 2003, the Senate unanimously passed a resolution that said no immigration provision should be in trade agreements. And, in fact, former Senator Hillary Rodham Clinton voted for this resolution. The existence of these 10 pages is in clear violation of that earlier unanimous decision and also in violation of the statements made by the U.S. Trade Representative. He has this quote. He has told members of Congress very specifically the U.S. is not negotiating immigration, or at least is not negotiating immigration provisions that require us to change our laws. So unless major changes are made to the Trade and Services Agreement, that is not true, said Jenks. There are three examples within the 10 pages of areas where the U.S. would have to alter current immigration law. First, on page 4 and 5 of the agreement, Roughly 40 industries are listed where potentially the U.S. visa process would have to change to accommodate the requirements when the agreement. Jenks explained that under the, under the agreement, the terms don't have an economic need, uh, ter- the terms don't have an economic needs-based test, which currently U.S. law requires for some types of visa applications in order to show there aren't American workers available to fill positions. Secondly, on page 7 of the agreement, it suggests the period of processing applications may not exceed 30 days. Jenks said this is a massive problem for the U.S. because so many visa applications take longer than 30 days. We will not be able to meet those requirements without essentially our government becoming a rubber stamp because it very often takes more than 30 days to process a temporary worker visa, she said. Jenks also spotted another issue with the application process. The fact that there are there's a footnote in this agreement that says that face-to-face interviews are too burdensome. We're supposed to be doing face-to-face interviews with applicants for temporary visas, she added. According to the State Department Consular Office, it's in the person's interview that really gives the consular office an opportunity to determine if this person is a criminal, is this person a terrorist, All of the things are easily determined when you're sitting face-to-face with someone and asking those questions. The third issue is present on page four of the agreement. It only provides an X where the number of years would be filled in for the entry or temporary stay. Jenkins explains that, for example, the L visas under current U.S. immigration law, the time limit is seven years. So if the agreement were to go beyond seven years, it would change current U.S. law. This wouldn't be unconstitutional if Obama has fast-tracked authority under TPA, and the Congress would essentially have given him the power to finalize all aspects of negotiations, including altering immigration law. I think this whole thing makes it very clear that this administration is negotiating immigration, 
intends to make immigration changes if they can get away with it. And I think that it's much more critical than Congress ensures that the administration does not have the authority to negotiate immigration, Jenkins said. And that was the article. And so let's go ahead and bring it over uh, to you, Dan, and then Kelly, what's your thoughts? Well, when it comes to TPP or any of these things, um, I've got a habit of thinking as the other side is thinking. And I, I learned this a long time ago, before I was even in business. I try to put myself in their place. And a lot of times it's very useful if you're working with somebody who is not an enemy or even an adversary. Um, you try and imagine, okay, if I'm that person sitting on that side of the table with that kind of life and those kind of concerns, how is this going to sound to me? Is this something that's going to make me feel comfortable and make me want to sign that contract and just go for it? Or is this something that's going to really uh, give me nightmares and I'm not going there? But it, it's really important when you do this with people who are your enemy. And they've already proven, those statists out there, that they're allied with statists around the world who are our enemies, that they're not allied with us. They have disappointed us. They have ignored us. They have worked in every possible way to take from us that which is ours, not because government gave it to us, but because we have it inherently our freedoms. And then we go and kick a bunch of them out and they have rigged the system so well that almost everybody who got in is really lukewarm at best. I mean, not all of them, but I'm not impressed. And they're all trying to make deals and they're all trying to to go along to get along and get a little more power. And that means I have to stay here for a while. I want somebody in office who's going to blow the whistle on this crap. I don't want just these, these glimmerings that come out through great investigative reporting, and, and thank you for that. That was wonderful. Um, I want to know what the hell's in that thing, and I don't want to give up President Obama fast-track uh, authority to go get a cheeseburger. Okay, I want him to take, it, it require a full vote of the, the Congress on that. All right, If it's his authority as the commander-in-chief or in constitutional matters, unfortunately, he is our president and will be until he walks out of that office hopefully in, in leg irons and chains going to prison, but walks out on his own two feet. And that's coming up. In the meantime, looking at what the other side might do, we've already got a huge immigration problem of 95 million people who are allegedly not in the workforce. There are 25 million illegals who are working in this country, illegals. We're not even talking all the legal immigrants that they're letting in, which we don't need right now from countries who aren't our friends, with lots of people who are not refugees, who do not want to be Americans, okay? Legal immigration can be good, but it's got to be the right people, and we get to decide. The state should be deciding. Mm -hmm. If they were able to pass this, even if we get up on our hind legs and howl because they passed it, for a brief period of time, they'd be able to bring in massive numbers. And one of the things that, about the European Union or the Russian Federation or any of these other uh, co-prosperity spheres, as uh, you know, uh, they had in, in Imperial Japan, uh, that's what they called it. They said, well, uh, Manchuria is not Manchuria. It's Manchuko. It's ours. And it's a co-prosperity sphere. We're their, their big brothers. We're their helpers. We're just going to take care of them. There is a possibility that they could bring in millions of people, more than they have, very, very quickly, six months, a year, we could be looking at enough people to actually completely take over a state, 
okay? Maybe not one of the more populous ones. They're already doing this in some of the places in the, in the Midwest that aren't real populous, uh, not places like Ohio, but um, uh, Minneapolis. Uh, there's places out, uh, what's the place with all the Somalis who don't want to be Americans, who like Sharia law. Uh, it's spa- I'm spacing at 1228 in the evening, but uh, they could do this. There's going to be some real hell to pay. These people think they're going to be safe. I'm warning them right now. You pass this crap. You continue along this path. You are not safe. Your family is not safe. Your property is not safe. If we are in jeopardy, you are in jeopardy. They can take me out. They can take out everybody I know. That's not enough. There's more people out there than they even imagine. And America is, at, is approaching a boiling point. Those low-information voters are going to learn awfully damn quick. And I don't somehow mm-hmm. see Americans who want to be able to do what they want to do, who want to be able to have some kind of chance at something, just passively going, well, okay, I'll be a slave. I'll just line up and take my food. I don't see it. Not when push comes to shove. There will be some, but there will be a resistance that you won't believe in. And the thing that these people also seem to forget, that even though they have names of every single veteran on lists, those veterans have skills. And those people that Kelly is allied with, the, the contractors, the people who know how to build things, people who know how to build things know how to take things down. And engineers know how to build weapons just as well as they know how to build homes and cars. Oh, 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 oh my gosh. Do not. What I am saying is to those power right now, and I know they're listening and they don't think very much of us, you better watch yourselves because you are risking everything you've built so far. You take us down. We're going to take you down to take it all back. And don't think that if you have a private compound on the mountaintop somewhere in, in you know, uh, the mountains of Virginia or someplace out, you know, oh, I'm rich. I've got a million acres in Wyoming. You can't hold it. We'll take it. And believe me, you piss us off enough, tar and feathers will be the least of your problems. Go ahead, Kelly. Yeah, there's something that really struck a chord with me about illegals and the local contractors. See, we're way up north. We're on the Oregon border, Sacramento, middle state. The board of um, uh, state board of contractors, um, they don't come up here to enforce the laws. So you've got people that don't have licenses, and you've got some Mexicans who are totally underbidding people. So you've got everyday folk who... They're in construction for 10 years, they got their license, and they can't get jobs because they're getting underbid. And the state's not doing jack deadly squat about this. And it comes to find out a number of these unlicensed contractors, the final cost is way more than the um, licensed contractor because he's got the experience. And so these guys are losing work, and then they got to go up and, and finish and, and fix mistakes, and it's just it's a disaster. But these guys are losing work because of this. Unlicensed, and some of these are Ill- illegal. Can you imagine what's happening? I mean, we're on, again, on the Oregon border. But you, you go down to Southern Cal, Central Cal, like Santa Cruz, oh my gosh, there's a whole bunch of illegals. Um, but, but Southern Cal, there's illegals everywhere. And they show up, oh, si, senor, I built your house for you. How much? Oh, 120000 Gee, I had a bid for 180000 Yeah, you're on the job. Um, 
if you're a citizen, you have to comply. You have to have a bond. You have to have a license. You have to have a church. You have to blah, 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 blah. And so you got to throw all those costs into your bid, and you're getting outbid left and right for people who hardly know what they're doing. It's substandard. But the free market is saying, oh, yeah, I'll take that. I'll take a lower price. Of course, that was the brochure, and the brochure that comes out is it's a mess. And so good, good, um, good, hardworking contractors are getting essentially screwed by this illegal immigration, come on over and do our work for us kind of a thing. Jeez. I mean, they, these contractors locally, they're my friends, and, and, and they, they sometimes it's a freaking therapy session, and they just bleed on my shoulder. Um, there's something isn't right here, I mean, obviously. So, I, you know, this Walt, this, this Walt Disney thing, jeez. I hope a whole bunch of people boycott Disney this summer. Yeah, that's uh, ridiculous. I'm very disappointed to hear that. I'm gonna, uh, and my brother don't live too far from there, so I'm gonna see if he's heard anything, um, anything about that. There's also um, some, you know, some other research I'm doing uh, on this uh, TPA and things of that nature. Uh, but just uh, put that as a program note, just to the bottom of the uh, hour to the second hour of the show. I'll uh, talk a little bit about uh, our special edition, folks, uh, that we have this Friday on, I believe, is it uh, Friday the 12th? And we will have on, uh, we're scheduled to have on Matt Bevan, because uh, we're pretty much booked here till uh, the middle of July, so we have to have a special episode to have him on, so we can get him on uh, shortly after his victory he had in Kentucky in the Republican primary. So we're looking forward to have him on. Now, I don't know exactly how long he'll be able to stay with us. Uh, I've been talking with the scheduler, and he, he said he would still be able to come on. We just don't know how much time. Hopefully by Friday uh, I'll know so I can uh, arrange things accordingly. Uh, but we'll be having a ep- uh, special episode on Friday night uh, to speak with uh, Mr. Bevan. to have him on the show. Looking forward uh, to that. Uh, so uh, check us out for our a special episode, which will be on the same time as normal at 10 p.m. Eastern. And so we're uh, definitely looking forward uh, to have him on that. And, well, one of the things I think I knew that I'll be asking him, other than uh, the other questions that I had, was uh, what his thoughts are on this uh, TPA now. Of course, as a governor, I don't know how much he would be able to do about it. Uh, Now, of course, if he would have, you know, gotten the, the Senate seat, that might be a different, uh, different reality. But be that as it may, uh, we'll have Mr. Bevitt on, and we'll ask him about it on Friday to at least get his thoughts about it. So definitely check that out. Um, and, you know, I, I hate this, what it's some of the things I'm reading, but we'll uh, talk more about it so I uh, delve more into, uh, more into it. So. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Hey, uh, can we talk just a little bit, um, Dan? I nickname you the Word Ninja. Um, yeah, I'm just. I don't curious, know about uh, Ninja. That that implies stealth. I, I'm pretty open about things I do, mostly. Oh, okay. Um, it was intended as a compliment. I know that. Um, I'm, I'm yeah. <laughs> hey, you know what, guys? I got to get up in five hours. So, 
keep let's get, have a little bit of uh, not sympathy necessarily, but uh, just forbearance for the mouth. I, I haven't been the most eloquent tonight, and I uh, got a little angrier than I usually let myself uh, express. But uh, what, what do you want to talk about, Kelly? Oh, I'm just curious uh, if you had a chance to do your magic and make this a little bit more palatable and exciting. And yeah, another two days will make it even better. It's a, yeah, it's it's good. Your idea, all right, folks. Uh, we're, it's a secret uh, that you'll have to listen to the show on Friday to find out. Kelly had an idea for presenting uh, Mr. Bevan with the possibility of something he could use in his campaign, basically an, an ad, uh, a, you know, and it's a good idea. And he thought that uh, I – and I volunteered because I'm an idiot. And I always volunteer. <laughs> uh, he thought that it, it, maybe I could uh, make it a little more appealing, you know, work the word thing. So I'm doing that. And uh, we're going to present that to Mr. Bevan, and uh, hopefully it's something that uh, will at least provoke some discussion. I'm not going to uh, pressure him to accept it. Uh, If he's willing to think about it, and if he's a good politician, which is he'll at least say he's willing to think about it, I think he will. Uh, (laughs) It may be helpful in some way. We've got to think outside the box, folks. A friend of mine just posted on Facebook, who wants to take that long-shot gamble? Right now, folks, right now, liberty is a long shot. I'm convinced we're going to win it, but this is a really, really difficult thing. The other side has it all lined up. They have it all organized. They've got all the levers. We've got very little on our side, but what we've got is something they can't trump if we can get the people with us. We don't need all of them. We'll never get all of them. But if we get enough of them and we get them moving, motivated, if we can keep from destroying ourselves with all our pettiness, if we can keep focused on that long-term goal of an America where the government is cut back to constitutional levels so that we can argue to our heart's content, so we can disagree about everything and have a wonderful, messy, dangerous, democratic republic the way that we're intended to have it so that we can have San Francisco be completely socialist and New Hampshire being completely libertarian. Not that either of them are quite there, but that's where they're heading. And Pennsylvania, where I live, is going to be a wonderful mix because we're going to have everything like we always did. We're going to have left, right, and center. We're going to have, you know, every possible thing that exists will be here. And we'll be getting along quite well. And that's what I want. I don't want to see the sure things. Because there's only two sure things right now. Either we let them do it and they take everything from us because that's what they've been doing. And it's not conspiracy theory or anything else. We don't, it's no secret. They've been doing it. Don't imagine that they're going to stop. Just look at what you know they've done in the last... 10 or 20 years, if you're smart enough and you've done enough history study, you can easily figure out that they started a lot longer ago, over 100 years ago, and they've been pushing us gradually to it. But the last 10, 20 years, they've really been hyping it up. They've been ramping up the pressure. They've been moving forward, forward, faster. And in the last five years, since Obama's, after his first year in office, they have been going crazy with this stuff. There is no way they're going to stop. They're not going to suddenly go, well, that's close enough. 
we'll let you guys have have what you're, what's left. It ain't going to happen. So you don't have to be uh, some kind of a mystic seer or a prophet to be able to predict what the future is. It's a sure thing if we let them. They're going to take it all. They've already said they want it all. We know that's what they're going to do. If they take it all, you've got your sure thing. They get everything. We get nothing. That means you folks. That's your family. You get nothing but what they give you. You stand in line for a handout. No jobs. Nothing decent, except what they give you. If they tell you to pick up a shovel, that's what you're doing. If they tell you you're not getting paid, you're just going to get food for the day, that's what you get. If they tell you you can't travel to go see your family because security concerns, turn back around or we'll shoot you. Don't tell me it can't happen here. There's no place in the world it hasn't happened. It will happen if we let it. There's your short wow. thing. Well, the well said. The long hey, shot uh, hey, is liberty. Well, well said. Hey, uh, Dan, on Friday? Yes. Who do you think should introduce this, you or me, to Mr. Bevin? I don't know. I don't know. It's your idea. You see, when, when, when you're talking of pitching an idea, um, let's, let's consider it from Mr. Bevin's point of view. Uh, he's incredibly busy. He's incredibly tired. Uh, he must be, even if he's got the constitution, uh, pardon the pun, of a tremendous athlete, which hopefully he does. <laughs> there you go, you uh, that's, that's, it's very daunting to run the kind of campaign he's got. He, I mean, he's running uphill the whole way. Uh, he barely squeaked in to get that primary win, and, that, and he's got to keep that momentum building and getting bigger and bigger and bigger if he plans to beat the Democrat because, you know, the entire establishment in that state, Republican and Democrat, is going to come down with every possible thing they can, every bit of money, every bit of expertise, every bit of organization, and every dirty trick they can think of. That's what mm-hmm. they're going to do. Okay? We know this. That's what they always do. So right. when we want to present something to him, it's going to have to be something that's going to get his attention, that's going to be entertaining to him. That's going to tickle his funny bone. The one thing we do know, having seen some of his videos, is he's got a sarcastic sense of humor. I love it. I really enjoy a sarcastic sense of humor. Yeah. Instead of instead of calling uh, Mitch McConnell a, well, we're after dark, a punk-ass bitch. <laughs> he didn't call him a nasty name. He made a, a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful video of him like having love conversations with Mitch McConnell and getting Mitch's name tattooed on his uh, on his arm and wearing Mitch T-shirts and you know this is just like funny as hell because it's sarcastic. So yeah, <laughs> you know if we can appeal to that, but I I don't know. It's your choice. You you're you're the one who wrote it. If you want to present it, fine. If well, you want me to, it's fine. I don't care. If you want to present me it. to present it or vice versa, I'll let you decide that. Well, I think back me up. The um, I introduced an idea last night at the homeless committee, and they all looked at me like, "You ought to run with this." Okay, my idea. I'll have to do it then. <laughs> so yeah, um, because I can I can get follow up questions because they're going. He's he's probably going to have several questions that he may not be um, aware of. But when <clears throat> the public simply hears. Hey, let's have a committee composed of everyday people to watch the government. Boom. What? Yeah, it's called a grand jury. You can submit your petition to them. 
Well, how about this? We'll keep 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 Kentucky out. Since we're having an on-air strategy session, you're the expert on that. I I mean, there's not a lot of questions I could ask beyond some basic stuff that he probably already knows or the answer. Uh, You could talk about the idea that you had and introduce me to present the thing. I present the thing, and then you answer all the questions because I don't want to have to do that. I don't know the answers well enough. And he'll have well, questions. I, yeah, this that is work? just. Yeah. Well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's great. I, I, this is just Sounds a brain good. fart, but, but the best, you know, little one-liner zinger is, keep Kentucky honest. Let's keep Kentucky I mean, honest. Zingers. Zingers. Yes, they were delicious. Well, I don't know about keep, especially Kentucky the red ones with the really coconut good. on it. Yeah, what? the K. Sounds sounds good with the two K's, and you don't want three K's in Kentucky. Believe me, you don't want to go there. But uh, keep Kentucky is a good alliterative sound. But that in- infers that Kentucky's already honest, and I think that's the problem. It isn't. Well, yeah, if you it don't was honest, wanna... Then Mitch McConnell wouldn't have gotten reelected. No, oh, I know, I know. Keep Kentucky honest. You know what? How about everyday citizens on a panel that can investigate government and keep them accountable? They just call the grand jury. You submit your petition. There you go. Let's keep Kentucky honest. I like it. But now, one thing I think right is going to be, well, I think one thing that's going to be important, of course, as it is in you know most elections, is definitely for now, you know, it's for Devin to be able to get uh, the independent vote uh, there as well. Um, so that that'll definitely some whatever it then if the one you know, or what your idea is, because you guys are more privy to it than I am. Interesting enough, but. <laughs> Yeah, if we, someone um, would stop promoting my book and actually buy it. All right. <laughs> so, so, so perhaps what's that, Kelly? If someone would stop say? promoting my book and actually buy it. <laughs> Are you talking about me, Kelly? No, I'm talking Tommy, to well, Robert. Just, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to Robert Jenner, the host of Bird Logic. <laughs> oh, got it. Okay, I see. Well, you know, so I figure that, you know, promoting it is just as well, and I'm still waiting for my autographed copy. <laughs> oh, he put it back on me. Oh. Okay. Yeah, okay. You got me. You got me. Okay. So. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, anyway. So as, as I was saying, you know, something that's going to, uh, you know, resonate with uh, those folks, too, and, and perhaps Kelly. Uh, on the air, and I'll be uh, working late tomorrow night, but uh, perhaps we could uh, converse before the show, so at least I'm not taken by surprise uh, by what your secret is. So. Well, that was my secret. Kelly, oh, tell, tell, him, tell him off air, will you? Tell him off air. I don't want to tell Robert off. I like Robert. Ah. <laughs> tell him off air. No, I'm not going to tell him off. By the way, Daniel, I can't well, gentlemen, wait uh, I hate to say it, but uh, I, I do still got about 13 there. minutes. Of course, I need at least five uh, to close things out for the evening. Uh, so I think we should go ahead and uh, do closing comments. I mean, it was great to have uh, our guest here tonight, uh, Marissa, someone who's uh, young and out there, uh, you know, just trying to do good work, uh, trying to bring youth in. And definitely, at least what we've seen in 2012, uh, the Democrats, you know, liberals definitely had the uh, the youth out for them. And I think at least for the liberty side, uh, we need to have a, a large showing as well. 
you know, regardless of who the, the different candidates are going to be. But I think that's definitely going to be important. And, and I think you know, if we could find a way to uh, get youth uh, involved even before they uh, reach college, uh, I think that definitely would be uh, be a good thing. Uh, so, uh, we, you know, hopefully we'll be able to find a way uh, to be able to do that. I, I think I'm sure, you know, I was interested in politics and things of that nature uh, when I was a teenager and, and, and activism when I was a teenager. But I know that doesn't uh, say much for, <laughs> you know, a lot of uh, a lot of the other youths, at least uh, of that age. Actually, I used to drive my, fr- drive my friends crazy, I remember talking about. My family as well talking about politics uh, when I was in high school. Yep. But guess go ahead and uh, Dan, give us your closing thoughts for tonight, uh, and then you, Kelly, and then I'll go ahead and uh, close things out. It's been uh, it's Wednesday. I'm sure it's already already been a long day for uh, most of us, if not all of us. I'm sure it has been for all of us here uh, on the show. So let's go ahead and uh, close things out. Go ahead, Dan. Well, bringing it back to our guest, Marissa, it was a lovely young lady and a very intelligent young lady and a very hardworking young lady. I'm very pleased to notice that from from the college people to the skater punks to the young fellas and ladies who are working in retail to the guys and gals who are working in construction uh, to our military vets who are just out of the service, people in their 20s, in their early 20s, are realizing that to rebel against the authority means to rebel against state power, state having too much power. And that they, this, what, what's offered to them right now and their future is awfully bleak. There's not much chance of them getting ahead. There's not much chance of them being able to afford a home, much less keep a home. There's not much chance of them being able to build a business. Their children, because some they're, they're starting to think, even though they may not be ready for it yet, they're starting to think about having families. Some of them already do have families, and they're looking at these kids and thinking, "My God, those these little ones won't have the the experience of liberty that that I had." And I look at these twenty-somethings, and I realize, and I tell them, "You don't have a clue. You have no idea what liberty's about. You didn't grow up, and I mean not firsthand." You didn't grow up experiencing it the way I did. That's how much has been lost in just a couple of generations. For those people out there who, who trust the government and think that that uh, these disinterested experts are going to somehow solve everything for us and take care of us, you, you're living in a fool's paradise, a dream world. You, you'll wake up one day. And, and you know what? When you do wake up, I won't turn you away. I won't turn you out. I won't say I told you so, but you're going to have some serious catching up to do, and you may not survive. And I'm not even talking warfare, civil war, any of that other stuff. I'm talking about the bank system collapses, and we've been inflating the system with false money for so long. If that collapses, that means everything collapses. If one of our enemies takes out our grid, which is incredibly vulnerable, and as we've known about this for 15, 20 years in congressional hearings, it's been in the press. If they do that, we're shit out of luck. There is so much that could happen and is likely to happen if we don't stop it and quick that you're going to be suffering, and a lot of you aren't going to make it, and that's not good. So it's, 
It's boring. Politics is boring. It's tiresome. It's annoying. There's petty rivalries. There's all kinds of nastiness. Yes. And that's a part of life. You're just going to have to deal with it. Okay? It's not enough. I'm sorry, but it is not enough that you went and dealt with your job or your family or your neighbors and you dealt with all the petty you had and you just want to sit down and play video games or watch, you know, the Big Bang Theory or something and just, hey, you know, smoke a little joint, just relax. Good for you. You do that, you're just as culpable as the people who are doing this to us because we need your help. You don't get a pass. If you don't help us now, you're going to pay later, and I don't want to see that. So get off your asses and find a cause. There are so many in the liberty movement that, that need your help, and there's got to be something there that resonates deeply within your heart. Do it. Do it yesterday. Thank you very much, Dan, and uh, definitely looking forward to hearing from you some more on Friday when we have uh, Matt Bevin on to the show. Uh, and so we'll, we'll go ahead and bring it over to you, Kelly, and then I'll have to close things up. Go ahead. We only got a couple minutes. Well, you're right. Politics is terribly, terribly boring, and I think that's why Robert Jetter doesn't say very much on his show because he's falling asleep at the microphone. Oh, no, the- I'm not. I'm, I'm multitasking, doing a lot of behind-the-scenes behind stuff, uh, Kelly. Oh, okay. I just had to joke around. I haven't joked around much tonight. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, I. Um, oh, no, I love politics. For me, politics is for me. Politics is very exciting. I love politics since I was, you know, a youth, since ten years old. Um, but you know, it's always been an exciting. Uh, now it has been exciting for you know my friends and family. But for me, it has been. But go ahead. Well, it is exciting to see that we can really help people. You know, we can make the lives of so many others that are suffering our same plight. We can make their lives better somehow. Um, but yeah, I, you know, again, another good show. And um, look forward to Friday. I'm going to tell a bunch of friends, and I hope others do as well. Facebook. Get it out, get it out, get it out. Um, but I, I, people will be stunned. I mean, I, I was stunned when I heard Matt a few months ago. I'm like... It's like, wow. And Bar's logic, you know, yeah, we're a team. Robert's our leader. And we may have brought in 20, 30 votes in Kentucky. A few other internet radio stations may have bring in 20, 30 more and multiply that enough. And we may have made the difference. So it's kind of exciting to be involved in such a thing, even though every now and then I do violate the ninth um, or the eighth, eighth deadly sin. Um, it's the eighth. <laughs> yes, the ace. Yes, ace. Anyway, so yeah, again, I've enjoyed this, and yeah, I'll be back next week. See Kelly and I, and I soak up your sin of doing the ace by not talking as much. So, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> you have less to pay in tenants. All right. <laughs> no, but oh, by the way, Dan, by the way, Dan. Yeah, by by the way, Dan, I can't wait till we meet in person. Uh, maybe I'll drink scotch or I don't know. I'm not a hard liquor drinker, but uh, we'll talk for hours, and it'll be so much fun. It'll be ridiculous. So, anyway. Yeah, we definitely got to do that. Try to find something that's kind of central. Uh, well, you know, I'm actually in between both you, Dan, and uh, you, Kelly. Of course, Kelly's got would have the farthest to travel unless uh, we found something. Uh, we could from all go to California Colorado and, and smoke pot. 
say, well, okay, I have never done that before, but really? <laughs> probably have no interest in oh, that would be never funny. doing it. I have a lot of friends who did. Oh, my God, that would be hilarious. Then, no, I, I haven't oh, done gosh, that. Oh, gosh, all of us but, uh, Oh, I've, ne- I've never. I tell you, you can't have uh, a, a pot, and I'll just drink copious amounts of beer. No, but anyway, <laughs> I'm going to have to shut things down. Uh, I appreciate everybody for coming in, of course, as always. Uh, I'm looking forward to uh, Friday, too, as well as well as our other guests that we have uh, coming up in the subsequent weeks. Uh, I will be taking a, um, a short hiatus uh, in the beginning of July. I will be taking one Wednesday where I probably will not be doing a show, not even a uh, probably not even a uh, a rebroadcast, which is probably in the three years that I've been doing the show. I think it's literally the only the third Wednesday night uh, that there has not been a show. I could probably look back in the archives and find there. So three nights, uh, three Wednesday nights in three years. Uh, I think uh, maybe I could be okay with that, but we'll see. But anyway, folks, uh, we'll look forward to that. And of course, I will win tonight as I do every night. And that is with the song by Aubrey Ashburn. And you can hear more from music uh, by going to www.aubreyashburn.com. Definitely check it out and enjoy more from music. So have a good night. Take care, and we will see you next time. Good night. <laughs>